Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. From the territories to Titan Towers to TNA and all points in between, he's seen and done it all. And now he's here to share the real story behind wrestling's biggest moments, controversies, and characters. The MLW Radio Network presents Something to Wrestle with Bruce Pritchard. Hey, hey, it's Conrad Thompson, and you're listening to Something to Wrestle With. Bruce Pritchard. Bruce, what's going on, man? How are you? Well, I've had better weeks, man. It's, it's been a rough week. Well, let's uh, let's knock some stuff out, and then we'll talk about what you're talking about. Uh, I hate to just jump right into it, but this is going to be uh, kind of weird. All right, so before we get on to some bad news, and then what we're really here for this week, WrestleMania 13, uh, we want to go ahead and put a bow on Rowdy Roddy Piper, one of our most well-received episodes so far. Uh, I had a little heat with Bruce for not editing out everything at the end, uh, but I thought it was real, and I thought that's what you guys wanted to hear. We gave it to you, and you guys responded. Uh, lots of folks are saying that was our very best show so far, Bruce. What's been uh, your feedback so far? Overall, it's been positive, with the exception of people sending me a deluge of Roddy's video of his hit single, I'm Your Man, uh, which, I, which I actually watched a few times over. Um, didn't have anything to do with that. That was kind of during one of Roddy's in-between times in the wrestling business. But I also had some nice correspondence back and forth with Kitty Toombs, Roddy's widow, who seemed to like the show, was happy that we did it, and felt that we did uh, Hot Rod Justice. Well, that's great to hear, man. Whenever somebody who was uh, close with the family and part of the family and the man's partner in life gives you the stamp of approval, uh, what else can we ask for? If you haven't already, go check it out. More than 400,000 of you have already checked out our Roddy Piper episode. We'd love to have you take a peek and uh, tweet us. Let us know what you think about the show. Uh, but before we get to WrestleMania 13, I hate to be a downer, uh, but we have to go ahead and address some tragic news this week. Um, I don't know how to make a weird, funny, awkward transition here, Bruce, so I'll let you just kind of take over from here. Well, we lost uh, someone very near and dear to me and near and dear to the wrestling community. Jim Ross's wife, Jan Ross, passed this week. Uh, in a very unfortunate accident that took place on Monday night. She was hit from behind on her Vespa scooter on her way back from the gym. And um, she passed on Wednesday evening. 
and Jan is Jim Ross's uh, biggest cheerleader, man, and I considered her a great friend, a wonderful, wonderful, wonderful woman, and I think Jim kind of summed it up best when he, he said he lost an angel. And Jan was just that. She was an absolute angel. And I'm all cried out. Um, I probably got some more left in me. But, uh, you know, send your prayers out to Jim Ross. He needs them right now. And he's going through a really rough time. She was his everything, and he was her everything. And it's just not, um, not, not an easy time right now for Jim. And, and, um, uh, just give me your love, man. Give me your prayers, and, and he's going to be out. Yeah, he's going to make it out to WrestleMania. He wants to be around family and friends. So let's send some prayers and love to Jr. And um, all right, so uh, let's get to it. What everybody wanted to hear this week, overwhelming in our poll this week, and we did a string of WrestleManias this time. We did ten, eleven, twelve, and thirteen. And it seems like we saved the best for last. An overwhelming majority of you, like 40%, wanted to hear the story of WrestleMania 13. Uh, Bruce, real quick, off the top of your head, what's the first thing that comes to mind about WrestleMania 13? Brett Austin. That's the first thing that comes to my mind because, to me, that was the turning point for Steve and just took him over the edge. Yeah, it, uh, it's maybe my favorite match ever. Uh, it's certainly on the list. Uh, I, I can't think of a match that I like any better. I watched it again this week for the first time this year. I, I, I would say in a long time, but I, I know for sure I watched it last year. And it's still just as fun now uh, as it was back then. Back then being March 23rd, 1997. So Bruce and I are actually taping this on Thursday, March 23rd right now. So as we're talking, Bruce, it was 20 years ago today. How fucking old do you feel? Easy now, Tiger. Damn, I was a young man. Mm. You, Scary, isn't it? Maybe you were 20 years ago, but you're not now, you old fucker. Uh, yeah, I was a, a vice president of talent relations at that time. 20 years ago. So Scary. is that code to uh, mess with the divas? I mean, that's what that really is, right? What? Okay, roll tide. So this happened at the uh, Rosemont Horizon, and we got lots of tweets asking, why didn't you guys run the United Center? So catch everybody up. Why would the Rosemont Horizon be the spot? Well, the Rosemont Horizon, first of all, for uh, performing talent, wrestling talent, man, one of the greatest spots anywhere in the world. It was fun to work. The atmosphere was great. The crowds were great. Um, and But from a business standpoint, it was a better deal. It was just a much better deal. The deal at the United Center, the United Center was new and very expensive. And we just had a much better deal at uh, Rosemont. Yeah, it's worth mentioning. uh, I didn't realize that I was in the Rosemont Horizon. I went to a pay-per-view last year right after WrestleMania. I guess it was late April. uh, And it was at the Allstate Arena. And I didn't realize that that was the old Rosemont Horizon, kind of the same thing, just a different name. Uh, until I looked up and saw the wood ceiling. And I remember hearing Steve Austin talk about that that building in particular was one of, if not his absolute favorite place to wrestle, maybe behind the garden, because he loved the way the sound 
would bounce off of that wood ceiling. He said it sounded like the damn crowd was coming in on top of you, and he just loved it. Uh, and yeah. so when I look up and I saw the wood planks, I'm like, hey, wait a minute. I think that's where Brett and Austin went up and down the stairs over there with that drunk guy in the leather jacket. Exactly. And, and that that's so true because the acoustics there, it's Rosemont Horizon, the old Hershey Auditorium, the old Hershey Arena was another one that was like that, where you felt like everything was on top of you and the acoustics were great. But I still refer to the, the buildings as the names that I remember when I ran them. Not the, you know, they change names every three years, it seems like. It'll always be the Rosemont Horizon to me. And the Rosemont Horizon, uh, for those of you who wonder, uh, was built in May of 1980. and holds about um, 18,000 folks for wrestling. The United Center holds about 20,000, 21,000 for basketball. Uh, so just as a frame of reference, and when Bruce was saying it was new, it opened in August of 94, so not too terribly long before here. I'm curious about the selection process of Chicago, uh, because when you look at WrestleMania and how it had kind of bounced around, you guys really tried something different with nine out in Vegas. You came back home for 10 in New York. 11 was also in the Northeast and Connecticut. Uh, but then we go back to the West Coast for California for 12, and now we're in Chicago for 13. And Chicago had been one of those early WrestleManias where we're in three places at the same time. But they hadn't yet gotten a major WrestleMania card like this. And I find that a little interesting as being what is a historically great wrestling town uh, and, you know, the third largest city in America. What took so long for Chicago to get WrestleMania, and why was this the right one? Well, it got WrestleMania too, so that that counts. It just, I think Vince overall liked the Northeast WrestleManias because of the time of the day. You had more time to prepare. He liked the evening feel. He's not real fond of those West Coast live events. He he likes more time to prepare, and he likes the East Coast. That's just a preference but chicago as you said number three market great wrestling town a lot of history and it was a market that we could go in and, and frankly you could charge just about anything that you wanted there and you would sell the damn thing out and do great business no matter what you did well let's talk about that uh <laughs> because you guys didn't sell it out and i found that a little interesting i guess because i kind of expected this to be a sellout given the strength if nothing else of the royal rumble now if you haven't heard it you should go listen to it like half a million of you have so far uh the royal rumble 97 was interesting to me for a lot of reasons mostly from a business aspect and how you guys managed to pull together over forty thousand people there forty eight thousand paid actually Catch me up. Why do you think this was the first WrestleMania that wasn't a sellout? I couldn't tell you that. I, I really don't know. It's probably, it may have been the attraction or lack thereof. We we changed midway with, with Shawn Michaels and everything, losing his smile and, and that whole, there was just a shift. It was at a time where we were really in a rebuilding process. We were at a time where we had changed the structure of contracts from going to the downside guarantee contracts. So it was a rebuilding period. 
and you kind of bite the bullet sometimes and maybe you, you take less now to make more later. Well, uh, the event was attended by 18,197 folks. They paid a grand total of $837,150 at the gate and it drew a 0.77 buy rate. Um, of those 18,000 and change folks, only 16,467 paid. And overall, it was met with uh, mixed reviews, to say the least. It was presented by PlayStation, which uh, is interesting because it was just a PlayStation back then. So you gamers listening, this is way before the PS4. This is Crash Bandicoot days. Um, one of the things I've always been intrigued by, and <laughs> yeah, only on this show do we talk about silly shit like this. What's the purpose of the fucking PlayStation blimp? Advertising. It was, it was having, it's like the Goodyear blimp over a football stadium, but it was in the arena. You know, this was drones before drones were cool. We had, we actually had a pilot in the arena with a remote control that flew the blimp around the arena. So it was another advertising avenue to sell the blimp and be able to have the damn thing fly across the arena plus we had a camera in it so you had the blimp cam to get another to get that big overview from the blimp so we you know football games weren't the only ones that had blimps we had our own blimp (sighs) whose idea was this fucking blimp who booked this shit i believe it was bob collins i love the blimp man come on I liked it when we actually had a real uh, – one day, man, when we talk about the real blimp that we had that we flew all over the country. Great story about me, Pat Patterson, and Stephanie McMahon on the blimp that I'll tell you one day. When will that come up? Uh, That's going to come up – oh, shit. Didn't we talk about it at Lex Express? That might have been that time frame. But we had a blimp, man. We had a blimp that, that traveled the country, and it had a pilot and a co-pilot, and you could you could travel maybe one more person in some gear and stuff. It was a weight limit. And they brought it to Connecticut one time, and we were all out at Westchester Airport, and they were going to give us a ride. And it was me and, uh, me and uh, Stephanie and Pat Patterson. Stephanie was in high school still, I think. But we ran out to the blimp. And we got on, and when I got on, the blimp just sank to the ground. And they wouldn't lift off because it had too much weight. And they made me get off the blimp so Pat and Stephanie could go fly in the blimp. But it was it worked out because they came back and they took me up by myself, so it was nice. Next week we'll cover the story of when Bruce was sent to Ohio Valley Wrestling to lose weight. <laughs> <laughs> there's, uh, there's pictures of me and i want to say vince was taking the damn picture of me running from the blimp with my hands over head, over my head he's like what the hell I go, i'm too fat i'm too fat <laughs> they won't let me ride the blimp that's amazing so, yeah uh so and they, and they left me and they left me when i went up for my ride by myself everybody left me bastards so anyway, that's my blimp story. Sad Bruce, the fat kid, and they left him. So who was on the blimp? Run through that again. Okay, we went out to ride the blimp so that uh, me, Pat, and Stephanie could ride the blimp. I need to hear Pat Patterson telling you to get off the blimp. 
Ah, uh, you're too fat. Get off the bruise out of pain. So we go up. Uh, fuck you. And so you're so, yeah. and so you're running out with your hands up. I'm too fat. Yeah. I'm too fat. You look over at Vince taking a picture, and he's saying, "God damn, pal! I told you to lose weight." Yeah, it was embarrassing as fuck. All. Yeah. I love that. Okay, um, let's go back to 1997, the March 10th edition of the Wrestling Observer Newsletter. Even though arena business remained strong for the WWF, as January was their best month at the gate, going back at least five or six years, there seems to be a feeling of a lack of momentum going into this show, coupled with a lackluster lineup for what traditionally is the biggest wrestling event of the year in North America. Now, I know how you feel about our great friend of the show, Mr. Dave Meltzer. He's uh, not my friend. Well, he was recently spotted at a pro wrestling gorilla. That's Miller time. At a pro wrestling gorilla show in California, posing with one of our great listeners who was sporting a T-shirt that says, I'm a Bruce Pritchard guy. So I feel like we should at least, you know, love on him a little bit for being a good sport. But you have to agree with this, that... January was a strong month for the WWF, January 97. But then for whatever reason, WrestleMania was just missing it. And that's what we're going to dig into here is kind of uh, how we got there. And the big themes we're going to talk about, of course, are the tremendous match that we've already mentioned, Bret Hart and Steve Austin. Uh, Obviously, the Shawn Michaels situation with him losing his smile, taking time off. Uh, the Monday Night Wars are really getting cranked up here. This is The Rock's first WrestleMania. This is Triple H's first where he's not getting squashed by the Ultimate Warrior. Ken Shamrock's here. You could argue this is the genesis of the Attitude Era, this whole time frame here, this 30 days or so. And we're just going to kind of set the stage and pick up where we left off our Royal Rumble episode Uh, As a reminder, again, uh, they blew it out at that show, which is available in the archives. 48,000 paid there, uh, 60,000 total in attendance. They did the big schmoz in the Royal Rumble where technically Steve Austin won, but they came back in February in Chattanooga and did a Final Four concept with The Undertaker, Vader, and Bret Hart joining Steve Austin. And then, of course, we know how we got there. Uh, in the championship match at Royal Rumble, of course, Shawn Michaels, the hometown boy, recaptured the world title from Psycho Sid. Uh, and this seems as if at this point, so let's kind of pick it up here. Uh, and for those of you who don't remember our Royal Rumble show, which for the third time now I'm going to mention is available in the archives. Shawn was sick that night and Sid had just been in a car wreck. But somehow they put together like a 14 minute match in the main event in Sean's hometown. Now he's the champ again. It's the boyhood dream. He finally made good uh, in his hometown and, and beat the big nasty heel. That was originally supposed to be Vader, also available in the archives. Uh, but at that point, the plan has to be the rematch from WrestleMania 12, right, Bruce? I mean, Bret Hart, Shawn Michaels, part two seems so natural, does it not? Well, I think it seemed natural maybe to some people, but the idea was to try and get try and get Austin into that mix, but we hadn't made the switch with Austin yet. So it was a kabuki-ish it was a kabuki-ish deal because you had Sean Babyface champion, 
in January. You had Austin coming up as a red hot heel, but he was a red hot heel that was a popular, you know, the most popular fucking heel on the card. And you got Brett, who Brett was getting there too. I mean, Brett was Brett was the man as well, and Brett was getting that heel edge. You know, the funny thing about it is Brett didn't think he was a heel. Brett didn't think that the shit he was doing and saying was heelish. He thought everybody would see it his way. As a shoot. As a shoot. But it was, you know, once I, I think he felt it felt it big time at WrestleMania with Steve and he was he felt it on the build with Steve that you know, they're turning on me. But he he felt that only the United States audience was turning on him. And and they were. I mean, but the uh, the Canadian audience, man, they stayed true to their Canadian hero. So it was a weird time. And you look at the guys on the card. You, you look at the the talent roster on that card from you know The Rock and Triple H. Um, you know, Steve was just coming into his own at that time. Sid, Sid was on top, and Sid was doing really well in his role i mean going back to the survivor series which i can't oh. wait to cover with you one day it was was really his coming out party at least for me he was phenomenal there vader was still booked as a top guy even the month before in the main event you know being one of the last ones at the royal rumble too uh having a match at the royal rumble against the undertaker so he still got really really good spots and so coming out of the royal rumble you've kind of got six top guys i guess you'd say sean michaels bret hart steve austin psycho sid uh vader and of course the undertaker and how you shuffle the deck and get to wrestlemania is what we're going to get into uh the night after uh the royal rumble gorilla monsoon makes the announcement that they're going to do this four-way and at that point uh it's to determine who is going to get the title shot because Sean is still the champion. Now let's right. fast forward. Lowell, Massachusetts, the day before Valentine's Day, February 13th, 1997. Vince McMahon hosts an in-ring segment. He invites the world champion into the ring, Mr. Sean Michaels, and he surrenders the world championship to WWF President Gorilla Monsoon, citing a knee injury. And he says that a doctor has told him he may never wrestle again. And the crowd, being in Massachusetts, starts to turn on him a little bit. And let's remember, they booed the shit out of him at Madison Square Garden in November. And here they're chanting, we want Sid. And Sid was supposed to schedule, was scheduled to take on Sean on this broadcast. Uh, so I'm sure a lot of the fans were thinking this is an angle. Uh, but he really is saying he's going to go home. Uh, and he's saying that uh, he didn't feel like he could say no during his championship reign, and he did everything that was asked of him, from the heavy travel to the public appearances. But somewhere along the line, he lost his smile. And he said this past year was the best year of his life, thanked the fans for their support, and then took a lap around the ring to shake and slap hands. And then Gorilla Monsoon announced that the winner of the Final Four match that Sunday in Chattanooga at the Final Four In Your House pay-per-view would become the new champion and that Sid would get a title shot on the following edition of Monday Night Raw. So the rumor and innuendo here is, according to The Observer, that 
you guys only had about 24 hours heads up that Sean was dropping the belt. So we've talked about this kind of in passing. When did you know for sure Sean's dropping the belt? Uh oh, we got to change everything. Day of. Uh. Low mask that morning. Wanted to talk to Sean. Vince wanted to talk to Sean in person. So he gets to the building early. Afford Anything talks about how to avoid common pitfalls, how to refine your mental models, and how to think about how to think. Paula, while certainly you can mess up on a million dollars a year, it is far less likely than it is on $30,000 a year. Right. I would meet wonderful people that were struggling with a budget that was super tight. It was 100%. You need to make more money. Make smarter choices and build a better life. Afford Anything, wherever you listen. Uh, well, I mean, it was before the meeting. Yeah. And so he and met and said he couldn't do it. He would hand the belt over and was going home and that was it. So we, you know, we had talked about it the night before, you know, we had a lot of what if scenarios, but Vince wanted to look him eye to eye and, and talk to him, see where the hell he was, you know, see what the fuck was going on. Wait, 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 and, wait, wait, you're skipping around. What did you talk about the night before? If he told you day of that, he had, we knew he had gone and seen the doctor and that he didn't feel that he could continue, but we didn't know, you know, there's so many times when, you know, you, you call it, you've been vinced when you show up and you've got something in your head and, and you think things are going to go one way and you get in and you talk to Vince and you walk out and you do completely the opposite of what you thought you were going to do when you walked in there. And we call that you've been vinced. So we thought that, you know what, this is Sean is it's something else is going on. Um, he had this appointment with the doctor. It's not good news, but we'll talk to him when he gets to the building on Monday. So from our vantage point, we're like, okay, this is, you know, what if, what if, you know, we got to drop the title? What if he's hurt? He can't go. What are we going to do? Um, but Vince was confident that that wouldn't be the case. Vince was confident that he would talk to Sean and by God, everything would be fine in the world. So, so it wasn't. And he came out and Sean's not going to work. Sean's not going to drop the title tonight. We're going to have him surrender the belt and figure something out. And that was it. It wasn't. And at that point, it wasn't a discussion. It wasn't, well, can we do this? Can we do that? It was, this is what we're going to do and figure it out beyond that. We'll, we'll talk about beyond that later. Let's get through the night. Help me understand. Uh, why were you talking about it the night before? Let me just freestyle. Because Sean- we knew he'd been to the doctor that week. We knew he had been to the doctor on Friday. He called Vince. He and Vince had had a conversation. So the it's a, question then is, is if Sean can't go and he comes in and says, I can't go, we got to have a plan B. So let me ask this. The doctor he's going to is a WWE appointed doctor or one he goes to see on his own? No, this is his doctor in San Antonio. Does WWE correspond with that doctor or Sean just tells us what's up and that's it? As far as I know, I didn't correspond with him. No, I was just doing TV and booking. So it was Vince that had the conversation with him, and it was Sean's doctor. And they probably did. Vince, knowing Vince, he probably did talk to the doctor. But 
Vince felt that he needed to talk to Sean that day and they had their discussion and, you know, he went, but you know, everybody talks about the, the promo. Okay. I can't go cause of my knee. I may never wrestle again, blah, blah, blah. My mom said I lost my smile, which made everybody go, what, what the, the fuck? fuck? So you're going, I'm depressed. I don't want to do this. I'm overworked or my knee hurts. Which one is it? Yeah, is it is it you may never walk again, you may never wrestle again, or is it I'm depressed. Mom said mom said I lost my smile. Yeah. And and dropping the title and and forfeiting the title has nothing to do with the the work schedule and making every appearance and doing everything that you're asked to do. Um yeah, he did all that. So did everybody else before him and, and after him. So it was um yeah, it was kabuki-ish because we were live and went out there and did that. So it was, you got to stop fucking just, saying kabuki-ish. Nobody knows what you're saying. Yeah, they do. They know it's kabuki-ish. <laughs> it's weird. It's kabuki-ish. <laughs> um, so you get so yeah, I, we didn't know. We did not know what the fuck we had, man. And you, you, there's so many times that you leave a building on on an evening. It's Miller time. And a guy's hurt, and they think, oh, my God, you know, this is really bad. And they wake up the next day, and A, they're either better, or B, they're much worse off. So you don't make a decision until, you know, you get them, get them there the next day and see how the hell they are that day. And that was Vince's viewpoint on it. You know, yeah, we're going to talk about it, and um, what if? Guys, keep this in the back of your mind. This could happen. Let me ask this. I kept asking, is this a WWE doctor or a Sean doctor? Because why? Why would you think I would want to know that? Well, because the WWE doctor is going to tell you, you know, the straight up. And we're going to have that communication with them. Well, we don't know if nobody, if it's Sean's doctor. Thank you. We, yeah. No, yeah. I know. I'm with you, dude. I'm with you on it. So, on here's, all that so here's my question. It's all over the internet. There's people who have strong opinions and, and Brett and other wrestlers have espoused these opinions for years. I don't want to know what everybody else thought and the way Vince spent it. I want Bruce Pritchard to state clearly for the record. Did you buy, given that it was Sean's doctor and this lose my smile comment that and his reputation at the time, not now, but at the time that he was fucking bullshitting here and just didn't want to do the job at WrestleMania and was, was ready to just come off the card but nobody said he was doing the job at wrestlemania and i don't know where that comes from either the the thing was do i believe the knee injury no i don't okay i believe he was depressed and boo-boo faced and was just whatever whatever the hell he was but i don't believe that he was injured and maybe not gonna wrestle again so, you know, again, when you're sitting there, we're all looking at him and, and going, okay, he's walking up the stairs fine. And, mm. you know, all that and everything's fine. And then, but again, those telltale comments, I lost my smile. Right. If, if, if you're, if you can't walk and you're wondering about, will I ever wrestle again? That's the only goddamn thing on your mind. Not, I lost my smile. Okay. So, yeah, I mean, no, I, I didn't buy it. Um, Meltzer says that this threw a total monkey wrench in all the house show and WrestleMania plans. Is that fair to say? Yeah. 
And, you know, and, and here's the other thing. This is crazy because I know your next question. I sat there and I watched WrestleMania and I went back and I did my little research for this. I couldn't tell you today what the hell the plans were other than I know everything was fucked up. I, I don't remember what the hell the plans were because we had to work so hard to change everything to go, okay, man, we got to fast track Steve and, and Brett. What the fuck are we going to do with the title? Who's who's that next baby face that they're going to accept with the championship? And it's like, okay, well, there's Taker there. He's never been the champion. Quit Do we skip, go there? Quit skipping ahead, dickhead. I just wanted to, just for a minute, but, say, hey, yeah. thanks for saying I don't remember. And now this feels a lot like a WCW show. Anyway, Tony, uh, what else don't you remember? The booking committee. That was them. <laughs> All right, let's get going here. Uh, there's talk, and I don't know, you know, how far we can go with this, but there's a random tidbit in the February 10th Wrestling Observer that says, quote, oh, Dennis Rodman's people told WCW that he had a $500,000 offer to do WrestleMania and be in Goldust Corner to set the two up as a tag team for SummerSlam. Since he'd previously worked for WCW, he gave them the opportunity to match the offer. The belief is WCW would have, but Rodman's NBA probation may not allow him to be a part of pro wrestling angles. Uh, and then in February on the 17th, it's reported that Rodman signed with WCW quote, WCW was able to outmaneuver the WWF, which was also pursuing Rodman. The WWF had offered Rodman a two show deal reportedly for $1 million dollars. The first of which would have been at WrestleMania to appear in Goldust Corner to attempt to help the faltering Goldust character get over stronger as both a babyface and as a mainstream bizarre cult figure. The second of which was the SummerSlam pay-per-view in August where he and Goldust would have formed a tag team. So what say you? What really happened with Dennis Rodman and you guys? We reached out to Rodman for that to do something in Chicago at WrestleMania and did pitch him coming back at SummerSlam, being a tag team partner with Goldust at some point. Um, well, not at some point, at SummerSlam. Uh, don't have any idea what the money offer was. It was simply a, are you interested? And he went with WCW. But yeah, we, we floated that out there to do something with him and Goldust. Why do you think that is? That he, wound up going, that, that he wound up going with WCW. I think that, you know, man, Hogan was there. They were hot at the time. Okay. Fair so enough. I, I, I think he figured that was, that was a hot property to go with. Now, a lot of people listening to this may not get the context, but tell everybody where Dennis Rodman was playing basketball in 1997. Chicago Bulls. So WrestleMania is in Chicago. And at the time he had written a book. And how did he show up to his book press events? In a beautiful white wedding dress on a Harley. So this guy is like mainstream with a capital M. So that kind of gives you uh, a, a peek into, hey, why would anybody want Dennis Rodman at the time? Andy uh, was a fan. Absolutely. Um, so let's kind of skip around a little bit. It, it feels like uh, Raw kind of stalls a little bit in early 1997, especially coming out of this injury with Shawn Michaels. And the Observer even writes, the biggest problem that for the WWF 
and going to two hours once again appears uh, appears to be a lack of talent depth. Uh, and you guys are trying some weird stuff here. And I found this interesting in my research. Uh, on March 10th, it's reported in the Observer that you guys had debuted uh, the new stage and the explosions to start the show. So this is the departure from the RAW letters or the very simplistic entrance. Now we've got um, a big stage and we've got a big Tron and we've got the brand new intro and the theme. Do you remember what it was? Just for a couple weeks. Raw's war. I don't know what Marilyn Manson's the beautiful people. Oh yeah, definitely. I yes. just thought that was awesome that you guys, I had kind of forgotten about it. I remember it, you know, as soon as I read it, it, it rang a bell, but how did that come about? Marilyn Manson at the time feels like a bit of a stretch for Vince McMahon to get behind. And I'm sure he had no fucking idea who that is. And you're not nearly <laughs> cool enough to do it. Um, I mean, it, if it was Merle Haggard, I would know it was you, but who the fuck put Marilyn Manson in the loop? That was awesome. That was the guys at TV. The guys in TV production were usually pretty hip on the music scene. That was Jim Johnston, whose uh, music, I think he's doing a new album that's coming out with a lot of his music. But Jim always was kind of on that cutting edge looking for new bands that needed exposure and a different sound to kind of make the show a little bit edgy. I remember that, though. Yeah, the beautiful people, the beautiful people. Yeah, it was great. Uh, it was really, really interesting, uh, considering where the WWF had been just prior to this. Marilyn Manson was without a doubt, the most controversial figure, um, in music at the time. Let's talk about Ken Shamrock for a little bit. He debuted with you guys at the Manhattan center on February 24th, 1997. Uh, and this is a really, really big deal. Uh, he's 33 at the time and he signs a three-year guaranteed exclusive contract with the WWF for what's reported to be a low seven-figure downside guarantee and a signing bonus. Uh, and the idea that you guys were doing that, uh, I call bullshit on. I'll circle back in a minute. Uh, Meltzer reports, in addition, Vince McMahon has the option after three years to continue the contract for an additional three years without Shamrock having the option to test himself at that point on the free agent market. The contract is exclusive, ending his participation in the UFC or any shoot fighting events. At least as of press time, it appears to kill what some Japanese insiders were expecting to wind up being the biggest money live match in pro wrestling history, a proposed April 12th match at the Tokyo Dome against Hashimoto for the IWGP championship. And it was reported that he would be expected to uh, start training in Connecticut with Dr. Tom Pritchard as to the WWF style. Um... And this kind of throws a monkey wrench in a lot of people's plans uh, where, you know, they thought they were going to sign Ken Shamrock. So how did this come about? Who contacted who? Uh, When did you guys realize there was a real interest here? What did you perceive uh, his real value to be? You guys at the time were presenting him and referencing him as ABC's most dangerous man in the world. Tell me about it. Vince wanted real. Vince wanted legitimacy. He wanted real. UFC was starting to get over more, and and a lot of their guys were were coming to the forefront. So we were looking at some of the UFC guys to see if there was a crossover star there. There was feeling that 
maybe that guy was Dan Severn. There was also, um, it's funny, I, I was talking to somebody about this the other day. I made a huge play for a young Vitor Belfort. Wow. To try and get, you know, 19-year-old Vitor Belfort from, uh, where the hell is he from? Uh, Brazil. Brazil uh, to come in. But the language barrier was was a big barrier, and he just wasn't interested in fake sport, as, as his people put it. Um, Vince was high on Ken Shamrock. He had seen some of the outside stuff that Shamrock had done and felt that Shamrock had the charisma and the crossover potential head and shoulders above, above anybody else in that MMA world. So I reached out. I reached out to Shamrock. And we started talking. The, as you said, the Japanese promotion, New Japan, was they were in hot pursuit as well. And WCW was also trying to get Shamrock. So the funny story, which it, it uh, all out, one of the New Japan guys everybody speaks so fondly of, uh, Hotori. I was trying to broker a deal so that Kenny could get the payday in Japan and still come with us and and do our deal. Hattori was double dealing, trying to get the deal for New Japan, but he was also trying to get – he was also working to try to get Kenny in WCW. So you remember – I guess they still have it now. <laughs> we still have it on our cell phones. But I was in my kitchen on my phone, and they used to have the uh, – your phone would beep, you know, and you'd hit click call waiting and go over to the other call. Right. So I'm on the phone with my Japanese counterpart, Mr. Hattori, and his English is minimal at, uh, yes, uh that uh, I not so uh, Mr. Shamrock. Well, in between, you know, while I'm discussing all this shit with him, he gets another call. So he clicks over to pick up the other call, and he comes back. Ah, uh, yes, uh, no, we can talk more. Uh, uh, hold on, one, one more, one more time. He clicks over, but this time it doesn't click over. But he thinks it's clicked over. And he goes from, uh, me to, hey, Eric, yeah, uh, um, uh, we can get Ken for those dates. And I'm thinking, hey, Hattori, it's still Bruce. Ah, uh, uh, me, oh, hold on, hold on. And I just was so fucking insulted. And I called Shamrock. I said, Kenny, I don't think we're going to be able to to work out this new Japan deal with you. And I don't think we're going to be able to let you do both, but we'll, we'll make it worth your while to come in. So we had, uh, talked to Ken. We, we secured Ken early on, but I think one of the, the other funny things that happened in that, in the middle of the Ken Shamrock negotiations back and forth, Vince and I made a trip to Boston for a house show with Vince driving and on the way back, it was a horrible, horrible, horrible rainstorm, rain and sleet and hail and all this shit. And Vince had a, a Cadillac. And we're driving down the Merritt Parkway. And the Merritt Parkway has a has a part where you kind of go over a bridge and it's one of those uh, metal bridges 
that your tires just get the groove and it catches your car right. And he's doing, when I looked over, about 130 miles an hour. And the rain is coming down sideways and hitting the fucking car. And I cannot see a goddamn thing. And I look at him and I look at the speedometer and I said, hey, man, just uh, out of curiosity, can you see where you're going? (laughs) And he looked at me and I swear to God, it was from a movie where he looked at me and he grew horns and he his face was actually bright red and the motherfucker had horns coming from his head and he just was like <laughs> and was staring at me laughing his ass off doing 130 miles an hour on this freaking bridge with my life in his hands so uh, that was just another part of ken shamrock that i remember because in the meantime we're we're dialing shamrock and trying to get shamrock on the speakerphone to finish up this deal on our way home just had to throw uh, that in if jerry jarrett was dialing the number never mind um (laughs) this uh these days, of course, Vince doesn't drive a Cadillac on 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 speaker what how how do you hello hello Huh? Okay. Uh, of course, these days, Vince doesn't drive a Cadillac. Uh, it was reported this week that Vince was in uh, a fender bender in his Bentley in Connecticut. I know you weren't there, but hypothetically, what might that have sounded like? Goddamn, Gerald. You work on Bentleys, pal? Is it worth the drive? You send a goddamn wrecker. Uh, well, Mr. 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 McMahon. McMahon. <laughs> <laughs> double Briscoe. Uh, damn, one of them's bad enough. Got double Briscoe. Shit. Uh, so let's talk about. Hey, and by the way, by the way, somebody's going to kill me for this, but that's a shoot. Are you serious? <laughs> wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. <laughs> In 2017, when Vince McMahon wrecked his Bentley, his first person to call is Gerald Briscoe in fucking Florida. Well, who the fuck would you call, Conrad? That'd be my first call. (laughs) You know, we we accuse people of being in the wrestling bubble sometimes. It's no uh-huh. it's no wonder when the Wizard of Oz himself is so far in the bubble that he's literally a thousand miles away. Well, goddamn, call Gerald, pal. Let me let me tell you something. Briscoe Brothers Body Shop they could work miracles from thousands of miles around all the time. Uh, chat me up about Shamrock. Um, this is bullshit. Seven figures, am I right? Yeah. Uh. Was there any truth to the idea that he trained with your brother, Tom? He did come in and work out you know, for a while, just to get the ring rust off. Yeah. Did, did your he, brother, so Tom? Kenny, Kenny had worked before. Kenny had worked as Vinny Valentino or something like that uh, before his UFC days. So he had been a worker before. He just came in to get the ring rust off was all. Has anybody ever seen Disco Inferno and Ken Shamrock at the same place at the same time? I'm just asking. 
Ooh, good question. Uh, I got to talk to Disco on Conan's uh, podcast this week. All right, cool that was story. Fun. Yeah, great. Uh, do you remember your brother giving any sort of feedback as to what type of wrestler or learner or what his potential was? I know you've told us before that you know when when he told you about Kurt Angle, he was saying he's attacking the mat and he took to it like a fish to water. What would the feedback have been on a Shamrock? No, the Shamrock was. Shamrock was easy. Shamrock was—he picked it, picked it right up again. And like I said, it wasn't really a training scenario as much as it was just a somebody to get in the ring with him and roll around with him to get that ring rust off and keep him from snapping somebody's neck. It was reported that uh, you personally called the UFC trying to get the rights to use uh, Ken Shamrock UFC MMA footage on WWF TV. How did those conversations go? They went well. It's funny. In the middle of it, the uh, the whole thing almost blew up in our face because of a misunderstanding. The let's get it on, that referee. Uh, Big John McCarthy. Big John, yes. Big John and Ken were close friends, and Ken wanted to bring Big John in for a one-off to do a – uh, referee a match with him would have been fucking and, great that's a great call yeah and i said well hell sure we, we'd we'd be open to that and that was the end of the conversation well i had reached out to the folks over at ufc um god i'm trying to remember i didn't deal with campbell i dealt with Myerwitz. yeah yeah uh, Myerwitz, and real nice guy and he was happy as shit to help us out any way we can and then somehow he heard that we were trying to steal big john oh my gosh which was not the case and, he, and I remember, steal, he works for the fucking athletic commission yeah but it, it was he was still the ufc guy and they felt that we were trying to steal big john and, and he called vince all upset here i am trying to work with you guys and then uh this guy is trying to grab big john and I could hear Vince yelling through the wall for me. I walked over and I'm like, what? And he says, did you call this goddamn referee? I said, no. What are you talking about? And he told me the story. And I said, no. Ken asked about the possibility of using him at some point. And I told him maybe we could at some point. So we got Meyerowitz back on the phone right then. And everything was cool. Well, so there you go. Um, talk to me about other interests and other people once you got shamrock were you guys kind of done or was there any thought that you needed more than this well we we brought severn in after that and there was there was always you know like we talked about coleman and kerr tank some of those different guys so the plan was not just i'm gonna get one and get my fill it's i want to get a crop of these guys or was it i want to start with shamrock see how it goes and then add to it well, no, Vince was always looking for charismatic athletes to come in oh, and, God and damn. hopefully come in. I but love, that's what you look for. You're not looking for a UFC guy that his only use is to go out there and beat somebody up because it's not a shoot. So you're looking for somebody that's got charisma and personality. Okay. Tell me about Dan Severin, fucker. He was the NWA World Heavyweight Champion. No, I'm talking about all the charisma and personality. He had a lot of he has a lot of charisma and personality in real life. No, the I, cameras I, I, I've met him in real life. He is phenomenal. He could not be a nicer human. Great guy, but when the camera's on, he has the personality it, of a fucking UPS truck. 
Yeah, and uh, but Vince felt that he might be able to get get that personality off screen on screen. All right, then didn't work. Didn't work. Um, let's talk about Doctor Death for a minute because there's rumor and innuendo that uh, you guys were in serious negotiations with him when he is arrested on March 17th in Laredo, Texas on drug possession charges. And this has a delay, of course, for his signing with the company. How far along were you guys with these negotiations when this happens? What's it like when you get the call? What are your memories of Dr. Death being busted? Shit, I think we had signed him. Really? Yeah, I think he had. I know we had agreed. At that point, because I, I don't know if I made the call or Jim Ross made the call, but it it was done in principle. I know that. So it was, yeah. You going to tell me about the arrest? Well, he got popped for drugs. He got popped for bringing a ton of, uh, what was it? It was steroids and, uh, somas and all kinds of shit. All Uh, kinds of shit. Yeah. Muscle relaxers and just tons of stuff from Mexico. Um, but charges were dropped and all that good stuff. So whatever the hell happened, I don't know what the fuck happened. But, yeah, he those negotiations and that contract was revoked pretty damn quick. Uh, did you take him a check, uh, a cashier's check that wasn't traced or um, a suitcase like y'all did for Snuka? Or how did you make that all those charges get dropped? We didn't have anything to do with them. Oh, you had a back man. Said talk, said talk to us when talk to us when your legal problems are over. <laughs> you shady fuckers. Uh, didn't do shit. Sure, he didn't. Cool. Uh, so the governor of New Jersey announces somewhere in here. I'm going to guess March that uh, they had done away with a tax bill that would that had previously prevented the WWF from running shows there uh but this kind of frees it up to where hey if this is gone we'll bring you a big pay-per-view and they bring SummerSlam 1997 there uh kind of curious through why that tax bill was a big deal and what your memories of that are for as, as, as far as it being a victory for the wwf when that changes well because the whole commission the whole state athletic commission was a fucking scam and bunch of bullshit you're paying tax on tax you got to pay double tax if you're wrestling and boxing events, they charge you another 5% on top of what you're already paying in state and federal taxes. Then you got to pay another for for somebody to come in on a work, an entertainment event, and take somebody's blood pressure? It's bullshit. That's all it was. It was just uh, the whole athletic commission governing professional wrestling was a joke. Around this same time, Jake Roberts is fired, uh, and it's reported in the Observer, quote, two weeks back, he took a rental car while on the Texas-Louisiana tour and disappeared for two days, including missing a shot. It was just a few weeks back when he was fired, but then rehired the next day for something similar. I guess his nine lives were up this time. He'd been working in the office helping write television, besides working as an occasional in-ring performer when needed. Uh, what are your memories of Jake's on-again, off-again employment in 1997 and then this rental car disappearance in Texas, Louisiana? Man, it was a rough time for Jake. He, you know, he'd come in, said he'd cleaned up his act and got on the road, 
and his act hadn't cleaned up. So, I mean, that, that was it. It was just the old Jake reared its ugly head. And Vince had given him a, a second chance and said, let's try this. I pushed for it hard because I felt that Jake's mind was valuable. I felt that he offered a lot, and I felt that he could help a lot of guys with psychology and, and ring work. So I thought that he could, you know, selfishly, I thought he could help me write TV. I thought he was very creative. But, you know, the demons took hold, man, and, and we got the old Jake back, and, and he became unreliable and just did some crazy shit. Uh, the go-home show for WrestleMania uh, is the one where a lot of people remember uh, Bret Hart being in a cage with Sid, and The Undertaker comes down, slams the cage door, seemingly turning on Bret Hart. Um, they go to commercial, they come back, they're taking the cage down, Vince is in the ring, and Brett takes the microphone from him, pushes him down, and yells something like, uh, um, something isn't the goddamn word for it, this is bullshit. And they, they air both of these, and then they show Stone Cold doing a promo and then there's a big schmoz and it's a big pull apart it's a pretty hot way to go to the show but i'm curious it feels like you guys wouldn't have just done this you would have gotten some sort of permission what did usa know was going to happen what didn't they know was going to happen it was late night. Uh, I want to say it was it was probably right at that 11, 11 o'clock. Yeah, I think it was actually run over just a little bit. Yeah, so they knew. We had permission. It was cable. Um, they knew it was coming. They were fine with it. But it was to show that, that edgier, whiny Bret Hart. And he was cool. And he was cool with, after being a babyface this whole time, saying goddamn and bullshit on TV. Sure. Hmm. Okay. Uh, so let's talk about the matches itself. WrestleMania 13. Let's get into it. Uh, and the only dark match uh, that, well, I, I guess it's actually aired on the, um, the, the free-for-all. Billy Gunn, as Rockabilly, <laughs> um, defeated Flash Funk with the Funkettes. You got anything for me? Flash! He's funky! Yeah, that's all I got. Man, Just, it, uh, it's crazy that you guys saddled Billy Gunn with Rockabilly. Whose fucking idea was that? Yeah, you know what? That was one of those situations where, uh, not, I almost said Hillbilly Jim. Um, he's in here. Uh, <laughs> but Honky Tonk Man coming back and thinking about, okay, well, this would be an opportunity for Honky to manage somebody and get somebody over and maybe use Honky as a mouthpiece because Billy wasn't that great on the mic. And it sucked. I can't wait to make fun of Honky Tonk Man in a little bit. Uh, the first match on the card uh, is a tag match. But before we get there, I want to talk about the voiceover. I hadn't seen this voiceover in quite a while, and I watched the show this week, and it kind of uh, stuck out a little bit. Who did the voiceover for this? Do you recall? Because it feels like this guy did most of your reads at the time. This was during the Sahadi years, so it was, I don't remember his name, but yeah, he was a professional voiceover guy in the Northeast that did a lot of our stuff. He was great. Why he had you, that deep, 
that deep, deep voice. It was tremendous. It, it was classic. Yeah. Uh, so then the four-way uh, happens with the Godwins out first, which is Henry O and Phineas, and Hillbilly Jim is there. Before we move on to the other teams, uh, how did you rank Phineas and Henry O as performers, as uh, co-workers, et cetera, et cetera? Well, I liked the hell out of them personally. I thought that Mark Canterbury, who was uh, Henry, could have been a huge star. And I, the feeling was when he first came in to make him a heel and then turn him into a babyface and kind of make him that big country lovable guy like Hillbilly Jim was at one time, who was over like Rover back in the day. And that was the intention with, with Henry uh, originally coming in. I just thought that he had a shitload of potential. And, you know, uh, Dennis, uh, Phineas, great guy, loves the business, but he was what he was. What does that mean? He was never going to be a main eventer. Didn't have, you know, great physique, and he was okay in the ring. But they're just he just didn't have that extra it factor to get him over the top. I loved Henry, and uh, Henry is a, a hell of a nice guy. I met him at NWA Legends Fan Fest this past year in Charlotte, and he is still a monster of a man. I mean, you know him when you see him. That's a big dude. But I'm curious, though, what the fuck is Hillbilly Jim doing here? It feels like way out of place. And I understand that you said, oh, he was over like Rover back in the day. But in 1997? To be able to get these guys over as baby faces and for people to cheer them. That was it. Color, color as much as you can to get people. You get the older fan that remember Hillbilly Jim back then and endorse some of these newer guys. I guess I I understand that in theory, but I, what I'm asking is, what's he doing? He's <laughs> he walks to the ring. Yeah, sings. Don't go mess with country boy, country boy, country boy. Don't go mess with country boy. Don't mess with country boy. Yeah, ha! That's not even one on the, more time. That's not on the network, but you got it here. So there you go. Uh, also here are Doug Furness. Oh, that pissed me off on this on this show, <laughs> man. The fucked up music. I was hot. Doug Furness and Phil LaFawn are here. We talked about them briefly on the ECW episode, which is available in the archives. But catch everybody up about uh, Furness and LaFawn. Doug Furness and Phil LaFon, yeah. I mean, that was it. Um, this, I know I'm getting ahead of myself, but, boy, there were parts of this match that were painful as shit to watch. Well, and, do you have anything complimentary about either Furness or LaFon or any sort of in, uh, antidote? Yeah, or, Doug, yeah, Doug Furness had one of the best drop kicks the business ever saw. Phil LaFon had Doug Furness. He's, he's both <laughs> French. Uh, we also had, uh, the headbangers, Mosh and Thrasher. Uh, we've touched on them briefly here or there. Uh, one of the more underrated acts at the time, it seems like they're going to get a push here because they come out of here victorious. Of course, I'm skipping around here. Uh, but catch me up. What did you think of the headbangers? How did you guys come across them? Whose idea was that? Uh, why was Vince high on them? Blah, blah, blah. Jim Cornette introduced the Headbangers to us, and they were first introduced at Shotgun Saturday Night earlier that year as the Sisters of Love. And we put them in nun outfits and had this really great manager, um, good-looking guy, but full too, of charisma. He was too fat to ride a blimp, though. 
He was, but he wasn't too fat to uh, get a couple of nuns over for two weeks. That's awesome. Yeah. We actually went in to St. Patrick's Cathedral in New York City, two men in goatees in nun outfits and brother love and walked in and walked out of St. Patrick's Cathedral and shot us leaving there for vignettes. Um, and then of course we've got the new blackjacks. I want to talk about these guys because I absolutely love this tag team as a kid. Uh, I thought they were awesome and I wish there was more of them. Uh, we briefly are shown a picture of the blackjacks from 1975 with, uh, blackjack Mulligan and blackjack Lanza. And then we cut back to a promo with Pettengill. Uh, Wyndham is silent and they let your boy JBL uh, or blackjack Bradshaw do the promo. And then they are just right out of the gate. And I absolutely loved the way JBL power walked to the ring like Stan Hansen. I mean, if you put a bull rope in that dude's hand and he swung it around, that was Stan Hansen. It was awesome. Uh, why did the new blackjacks fizzle? Because it felt like they got a little bit of a push for a minute. They're two big, badass dudes. Everybody knows what great success Layfield would go on to have. Certainly a Hall of Famer. And then Wyndham, my gosh, once upon a time, one of the best performers in the world. And they're in a tag team here, and they're getting a little bit of a push. And then, what happened? Well, I think that there was an effort on their part to be too much like the Blackjacks. Instead of reinventing uh, the Blackjacks for 1997, I think they were trying to be the Blackjacks 1975. Um, during this match, when Wyndham was in there, holy shit, did he look good. I mean, he's just so damn good. Barry Wyndham was a great worker, and it showed in this match. The guys that were out of place in this match, in my opinion, there were three. It was Furnace, LaFon, and Phineas that were really just kind of lost in the match. Um, but there, there was a little bit clusterish until you got Furnace LaFon and the Blackjacks out of there, and it settled down a little bit with the Godwins and the Headbangers. But it was a bit of a cluster. So in the match, of course, uh, we get a win from Mosh. It's elimination. Blackjacks are DQ'd first when Bradshaw pushes down a ref for no reason. Furnace and LaFon are counted out for fighting with the Blackjacks. That leaves the headbangers and the Godwins. Mosh comes off the top uh, with some sort of like Thez press uh, butt to the chest on Phineas and gets the pin. Meltzer gave it a uh, negative uh, half star. He hated the match. What did you think of the match? Like I said, I thought it was a clusterfuck until it settled down to the two teams. And we got out of it what we wanted. We wanted the headbangers to win and get a new team spotlighted. Well, if it wasn't a match of the year, that's for damn sure, but it wasn't negative. It's also the first time that I remember a tag match had been done like this at WrestleMania. Wouldn't you agree? Like uh, an elimination like this? Yeah, I think so. Uh, so Rocky Maivia is out next to take on the Sultan. I guess the Sultan comes out first. He's got Bob Backlund and Iron Sheik with him here. Uh, the Sultan here is being portrayed by the guy who would go on to play Rikishi 
uh, for some of you younger fans who may not remember who the Sultan was. And uh, I don't know why, but man, I fucking love Jim Johnston's version of the Sultan's theme music here. Probably the best thing about the character. Can we agree? Okay. All right. Well, give me some, give me something else. <laughs> you didn't that... like the you didn't like the ponytail in the mask. Did you draw that? No, but I did love it. <laughs> I used to love it when guys would grab it and pull on the ponytail, and, and the whole would, mask would come up. The whole mask would come off, and it would just oh god damn. What? Uh, how does this come about? Rikishi had been with y'all for a while here. Whose idea is the Sultan? I mean, it's just like. Well, we need a new version of the Sheik. Let's get a let's get a Middle Eastern character. I it was Vince's idea. He he liked he he loved the idea. He liked the mask and and that whole nine nine yards. And just thought he could cover up Junior enough that no one would ever know. Um, and he you know he had a soft spot for the Iron Sheik. So it was another way to get the Iron Sheik involved as well. And throw Bob Backlund in there, and you got old and older, and <laughs> and a big Samoan. Let's talk about how Rocky Maivia won the Intercontinental title. I'm sure we'll cover Rock's first year in the business at some point, but he debuted at uh, Survivor Series in Madison Square Garden in November. A couple of months after that, uh, in that same Lost My Smile edition of Raw in Lowell on February 13th, he pins Hunter Hearst Helmsley in a 15-minute match to win the title using an inside cradle. And uh, they do an interview with uh, him afterwards, uh, Doc Hendricks does, and Triple H storms off. And this, to, at least to me, seems like there may be the seeds of, hey, this is what we're going to see at WrestleMania, Triple H and Rocky Maivia. Well, that doesn't happen. Um, the Wrestling Observer writes, Rocky Maivia, the former Dwayne Johnson with less than one year in the pros, was surprisingly given the Intercontinental title on February 13th from Hunter Hearst Helmsley. There'd been some question that Maivia's push was going to wind up in a Van Hammer slash Eric Watts-like situation that fans wouldn't buy a green wrestler being shoved down their throats and pushed back. If there was any doubt during the match and even before the title had changed, there were chants of Rocky sucks. Uh, Rocky has potential, but pushing it by putting the belt on him with less than a year of ring time is going to make the fans resent him as it has already happened. So that's kind of Meltzer's take. And that is where we started to see Rocky sucks and die, Rocky die and kind of the pushback from the white meat baby face. How did that affect the rock at the time? What advice are people giving him at the time? I know his dad is around a little bit, but I'm sure agents, Pat Patterson, yourself, whoever is in the back, giving him some advice. And I'm curious before he has all the swagger and confidence that the rock does in 2017, how was he reacting to that in early 97? Well, obviously the kid didn't have it and would never make it in the business. So, that was all wrong. You know, it, it was, they did, man. They puked him back up. It was, the audience wants you to earn your stripes and, and they want to, they want to feel as if they brought you to whatever point you get to. So if you're going to be a champion, the audience wants to feel that they brought you that championship. And, and he was pushed right away, man. He had the look, 
He had he had it. He had it all. But hindsight being twenty twenty, um, in a lot of ways, if you could go back and write it, I think I would write it exactly the same way. And let them. To me, it's a good thing. Hindsight. We didn't plan it. I'm not saying that. Hey, we planned those Rocky sucks chants. But I'm saying that those Rocky sucks chants and die Rocky die probably helped his career more than anyone will ever know. Because when he did get hurt and went away, we had something that we could really feed off of to bring him back as a heel with the nation. And while it was tough at the time, I think the advice was pretty much, man, you got to persevere. You got to fight through it and do what you do and let, you know, let the audience do what they do, but don't feed into it. And that was just an old school mentality of, of fight through it. But yeah, they were, they were puking him up at that point. So let's talk about the match itself. Uh, what do you think of uh, Rocky Maivia, the white meat baby face, with his uh, ramen noodle haircut here, his uh, pineapple willy haircut here, taking on Chia, the Sultan? This was the Chia Pet look. There you go. This time. Ch-ch-ch-Rocky. rocky Yeah. Uh, what do you think of the match? It goes uh, longer than it probably should have. Actually, I didn't think the match was terrible. It was. It got terrible with the interference from Shiki Poo and Backlund. But it, was, it wasn't it was terrible. Uh, again, you see shades of the rock that we know and love today. And goddamn, man, Rikishi can, could go. And back then he was a little bit lighter, and, and he, could, he could go. Their shit was solid. But I felt that there were probably too many false finishes in there and not good false finishes. But I didn't think the match itself was bad until we got to the finish with all the interference and Gaga. They put this uh, feud together in like 17 days or so, start to finish. Uh, so kind of in a hurry. Um, and then the match itself to me was not awesome. And, and I'm curious, you know, why it's put together this way. It's, uh, I wondered if this is Rock's first WrestleMania and you're wanting to get him over as the white meat baby face, do you just put him with the quote unquote foreigner heel because it's easy to see who to boo and who to, and and who the heel is. And do you do this because, you know, they're related and they're going to be comfortable with each other. What's the thought in pairing them up? It just seems like it's kind of thrown together. Well, the idea simply was that you do the white meat baby fence against a heel that the audience isn't going to cheer. Uh, with Triple H, you got Triple H out there with China, younger, good-looking guy with a cool, you know, bodyguard chick that looks kind of cool. Um, they did shit on him with the title, so get him away from that where they have something else to choose and go with the stereotypical, easy to do. You know, white meat baby faces versus the traditional foreigner heel. So leading up to this, uh, he's congratulated at uh, an episode of Raw by his dad, Rocky Johnson. And they're trying to put over that he's the first third generation star. Of course, his grandfather being the high chief, Peter Maivia. Talking about the match itself, Meltzer wrote, No question Maivia has both the look and the athletic ability to someday be what they want him to be, but a lot of folks resent him getting pushed to this degree because he's not there yet. The post-match angles was one of those things that looked better on paper than it turned out to be. And the post-match angle was where uh, The Rock gets the win, and 
Then right after, of course, Sheik's in there, Backlund's in there. They bring the flag in. Uh, they uh, get Rocky down, and Sheik puts the rock and the camel clutch. Um, what might that sound yeah. like? Uh, for to be your rocky baba, fuck you and ass and humble you. Uh, fuck your dad too, baba. Uh, uh, why invite Tony Atlas here if you're not going to involve him? Tony Atlas is sitting front row. <laughs> God the, damn, the, I'm laughing my ass off watching that, thinking, oh, my God, we're burying Tony Atlas I mean, right now. He looks so bad because you show him on camera. Right before him. Right before, and you – and now you've got your son's, I mean, your tag team partner's son getting beat up three to one. And then his tag team partner comes in and he's still just sitting in the crowd, jacked than a motherfucker, doing nothing. Goddamn, pal, that was Saba Simba. <laughs> I don't understand. He didn't understand what was happening in front of him. It was foreign to him being out of the jungles. Now, I'm very disappointed in you, actually. Why? Because you didn't mention what I guarantee you missed oh, in the entrance of this match, the Slammy Awards the night before, and The Rock with his, quote, girlfriend, Cindy Margolis, at the Slammy Awards. And Cindy Margolis, for those of you who don't know, was a supermodel. She wasn't a supermodel, but she was a pinup model who had – Eclipse Sunny as the most downloaded celebrity uh, at that time. And we had Cindy for WrestleMania, so we put her with Rock as Rock's girlfriend for that weekend. And they mentioned, they mentioned it as he was coming to the ring. But uh, Cornette, oh, my God, the promos Cornette cut on that. Goddamn, you put him with a good-looking girl, he's a fucking heel. You're going to boo the shit out of him. They hate him now. They're going to hate him with a hot bitch, too. God damn it. You're killing him. So, um, yeah, that was that was interesting because the idea behind Cindy Margolis was to bring Cindy in and actually use her as Rock's girlfriend and then um, – do something with with Sonny and and do the most downloaded celebrity bullshit. But she, yeah, that uh, lasted one night. She did apparently a weird series of photos because I just Google imaged her and I ran across several pictures of her uh, with various items in her mouth. And don't get excited, but it's like here's her with a banana in her mouth. Here's her with a chocolate banana in her mouth. Here's her with a pickle in her mouth. I mean, it's like, what, what, what happened? What are we doing? What the hell are you looking at? I just go. Oh my god! <laughs> I'm like, wait a minute. What, the, what the fuck happened over here? What are you doing? What are you doing for well, money the, over there? Yeah, the, the sex pictures are her. I don't know. I don't know if that's her with the banana. Yeah, it is. That's wow. Hey, let me uh, just let me just the say banana. She's got a lollipop in one. Say that's what I'm saying. It's like, wait a minute. What are you? You did like a theme of how many things can I put in my mouth? What the hell? Sounds a lot like somebody else who was there that night. Um, let me just say for 51. Whoo, Cindy Margolis is still pretty damn good looking. Roll Tide. Uh, and she was nice as could be too. 
if I was going to make a comment about The Rock with his quote-unquote girlfriend at the Slammies the night before, it wouldn't have been that. But we'll circle back to that another time. Captain Lou is sitting front row next to Tony Atlas. You have to have a good fucking Captain Lou story here. At some point in the commentary, you even hear Jim Ross make some sort of comment that it must be cocktail hour. Captain Lou's here or something like that. Yeah, it, Captain Lou was there. Uh, <laughs> it was better having him out there sitting there. And he's, I believe he and Tony Atlas were the only two that were out. Lou was out there the entire night because I refused to have him backstage. So, yeah, we stuck. Arnie Skolan was out there just for the shot of him and Arnie Skolan. And then we put him and Tony Atlas out there for the for the entire night. But, um, yeah, Lou was Lou was lit. What was uh, Rock, what was Rocky Johnson like to deal with here? He has a really weird reputation online. This time, you know, Rocky, he was pretty easy to deal with. He wasn't a problem. At this point, man, he was happy to get a payday and happy to be on TV. So he was always just good to deal with. You don't have anything interesting you can share with us about Rocky Johnson? Well, from my vantage point, he was always good to deal with because I never had to deal with him uh, when allegedly he was difficult to deal with. By the time that I ever had to deal with him, I dealt with him as, you know, Rocky's dad. And it was always a plus to be able to put him on TV. And he was always happy to get that exposure. So I, I never dealt with him back in the day other than casually. No, um... No craziness with him otherwise? No. No, especially during this time, man. He was he was happy that his kid was getting a break and he was like I said, the old timers, man, especially, you know, Rocky, he was happy to get a payday. Okay. I just wanted to ask, you know, there's lots of uh, weirdness out there because of, you know, some run ins with the law he had or different stories that different promoters have and rumors about him being estranged or not. But if we don't have anything to share, then we don't have anything to share. No, there were times he was estranged with Rocky, but that, uh, to my knowledge, that was much later in his career in, in Rocky's career. Um, let's talk about Vince McMahon as an announcer, because this is the last WrestleMania that he is an announcer. And then from there, Oh my, what a maneuver. I don't know why, but I always wonder <laughs> why it talk like this. What, what was up with that? Like getting higher and like further away and one, uh, uh, two, he got it. No, he didn't. Oh, no. Oh. One, two, he got him. Oh, no. Yeah. We, we used to, yeah. It, <laughs> we would do him to him in the car. Did he laugh? Did he laugh? Yeah. Is he cool with that or no? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. No, he, he laughed his ass off because we would just bust his balls with, with oh, my. What? He would ask us a question. I was, oh, what a maneuver. I was, I dare you to call just one fucking move. Just one. Goddamn, pal. The audience doesn't know the name of the holds. It's true. Uh, Hunter Hearst Helmsley does a promo backstage with China, uh, and then they're out to face Goldust and Marlena. Uh, and the kind of the backstory here, you may remember, they faced each other at the Royal Rumble when the Intercontinental title was on the line. Uh, back then, 
Hunter was seconded by Curtis Hughes. But at the next pay-per-view in your house final four in Chattanooga, that is where China would debut as a woman in the crowd who would just violently uh, assault Marlena over the guardrail and then be escorted out. Uh, as we fast forward, we start to see her being paired with Hunter. And we continue this feud through February, uh, including a raw in Nashville on February 17th, the day after uh, In Your House. Uh, this feud just continues to go on and on. So the match here starts off kind of hot, uh, but then I, I thought it lost a little bit. Uh, but it was better than the Rumble match, I thought. Uh, Meltzer wrote, these guys are both better than average workers, but for some reason, considering how hard each is pushed, they just have no chemistry in the ring with each other. As Goldust went for the curtain call, he saw China after Marlena and pulled her to the apron. Helmsley came from behind with a knee dive to Goldust, who crashed into Marlena, and then Marlena flew into China's arms. China was throwing Marlena around in a bear hug while Helmsley hit the pedigree for the pin. Two and one quarter stars. What did you think of the match? And in hindsight, would you have preferred something different for either of these guys here? Actually, I thought they had a damn good match. I enjoyed the hell out of it, and it made me think back to motherfucker Gold Dust. Was a hell of a worker, is a hell of a worker, is underrated. Jesus. Yes. I, I, I don't know why people sleep on him. We've had him on the poll a couple of times. But I think Goldust is maybe one of the most underrated performers of all time. Just his ring work is awesome. His character is great. Why does he? He should have been the. He should have had a run. He. I, I'm watching this match, thinking, "Good God, he's he's amazing." You know, and both of them are great workers. But to me, Goldust, man, got that MVP card on this one he, he was great in this match his stuff is crisp even with the paint and everything he's i i fuck two and a half stars i i thought it was great i, I really enjoyed this match it's one of the ones it's one i had starred and it wrote down great match gold dust underrated no I, I liked it uh a lot better than the rumble match but for whatever reason i just never really liked um hunter and dustin i, I felt like They've had better matches with other people. I, I kind of agree with Meltzer here, and, and I felt that way before I read this recap. You know, the funny thing to me was every time that they would talk about how concerned Marlena was, and they would take the shot of her in the in the corner sucking on the cigar, and she never had a change of expression in her on her face the entire time. Had a lot of makeup on. Um, let's talk about the finish here because i think what everybody remembers most of all from this is what china ragdoll and marlena oh, god damn that looked fucking great did it not yeah but that that's on marlena too though man the way she like flopped her arms and brought her legs up that was tremendous and I, i'm let me just freestyle i guess here everybody's cool with everybody here we got lots of questions about was there any heat over this? But this just looked phenomenal, but I can't imagine that people were super fired up. Do I have that right? Oh, yeah. No. Everybody's fine with it. Who would be fired up? No, I don't know. I'm just giving you a heads up because I know there's some people on Twitter who were asking, hey, did China really not like them? And she really ragged all the shit out of her. And I'm like, well, no, that's kind of what she was supposed to do. And it looked awesome. 
Uh, let's veer off into super personal territory here. Was China already hooking up with Triple H by this point? I don't think so. It was still pretty new in the relationship. Yeah, I mean, she, I don't, but she, I don't know. I don't know when the hell they were started hooking up. But yeah, I, yeah. I remember when everybody kind of went, "Uh oh, he's worked himself into a shoot." When was that? This, they were still pretty new here. This was like a couple months in, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, this is one month in. They started it one month. The, yeah, the, then the they prior. weren't. No, they weren't hooking up. No, I don't think so. You just said I could to be me, wrong. You just said. I remember when people said, "Uh oh, he worked himself into a shoot." When was that? That was that was a while later, man. That was that was a while later. I want to say that was after. God, that was wild. Did they try? To, it wasn't. It wasn't soon. That's for damn sure. Did they try to keep it a secret at first? I don't know if they did or not, but because we noticed it at TV, and I want to say that the first time that it was ever brought up in my presence was, I believe. Vince had called Hunter at home and Joni answered the phone. So he was like, okay. And they, they trained together anyway, and they lived in the same vicinity anyway. But that's when he said, you know, Hey, he might've worked himself into a shoot, but it was, it was a little while. It wasn't this soon. I don't think at all. All right. Next up. But I couldn't, I couldn't tell you the time frame. Thanks a lot, Tony. Next up, we've got Mankind and Vader out with uh, Paul Bear, and um, they're going to take on Owen Hart and the British Bulldog. Man, how fucking great was Owen Hart right here? I forgot how much I loved the two-time Slammy Award-winning Owen Hart. Just over the moon awesome to me. And, and of course, the British Bulldog has two belts here, the European title and the tag team title. How great was this pairing of Owen and Bulldog? Some of the best times ever. And Owen took what the funny thing was is Owen took what some guys would have taken as a burden, having to carry around two slammies, and made it mean more than any championship belt you could ever want. The two time Slammy Award winning Owen Hart. And he was just magnificent his timing was impeccable the interview that they did in the Iowa where Jim Ross stopped them before the match and did the interview and Owen had made a comment about how he was the leader of the team and then JR asking both of them and the way that Owen would defer the heat and then come right back around with the with the comment I'm the leader <laughs> at the end of it he was just magnificent he was so good and I think this was some of his best work Something I found interesting is I don't remember you guys ever doing this, and I'm sure somebody's going to tweet me and say, no, they did it here, but I don't remember while a, a, a tandem, a tag team, or for that matter, a singles performer, is making their entrance and walking to the ring that a commentator stops them in the middle of the aisle for an interview on camera. I can't remember one either, but like, I say, like you just said, someone will probably correct us. So whose idea was that? Because it seems out of character at the time is what I'm getting at. It was just a way to do something different and to get that story told without having to do a long promo in the back and to get them out in front of the people, keep it moving. That's all. Um, let's talk about Vader and Mankind because we are talking about how great the Owen Bulldog stuff had been, but this kind of seems like consolation prize for vader and mankind vader had been 
Uh, main he main evented the SummerSlam show and was probably supposed well definitely supposed to main event Survivor Series and Royal Rumble. As we know, that didn't happen. The December pay per view was even named "It's Time" after Vader. He's not even on the fucking show, but he is one of the final four. He does wrestle the Undertaker at the Royal Rumble, and he's one of the final four in the Royal Rumble. And then headlines the pay per view the month before. Bleeds like a stuck pig, makes the cover of the Raw magazine, and now he's paired with Mankind, seemingly kind of just fucking thrown together here to challenge for the tag titles. How does that come about? Well, I, I disagree with most of that, I, as you could probably guess, but I the idea was Mankind was brand new. And by the way, Mankind had been here a year at this point. Well, no, it was still relatively new. And the reason I say that is because he was still shaving his head all messed up on one side. He debuted in March of 96. It's March of 97. So tell me. Yeah, so it was still new. Okay. I said said a year, (laughs) and you said no, he was new. Well, that's a year. That's new. But, again, they were were both – I thought they were both top guys, and it was all for every single guy in that match was a top guy. So it was, to me, a top match that I don't think it was a step down for anybody in there. Let me ask I do you. feel that if there was anybody lost in that match, unfortunately it was Leon because guys were zooming all around him, and there's a few spots in there where you can see Owen trying to get Leon to catch up and, and Owen literally running around him, you know, yelling spots at him and Leon looking a little confused. But um, The bloom was it, off it, the rose here. For it was yeah but at the same time this was an attempt to, to kind of get him in the mix keep him with paul bearer and keep him with mankind and obviously mankind was off to the races as well but i, I yeah i don't think it to me it was all four top guys and and this is another one I, I just you know obviously i'm a big fan of of owen but the announcers set the stage on this match so well talking about you gotta isolate isolate uh owen hart keep bulldog out of this match and jim knew the story of the match and told that story throughout that match and how they kept owen in the ring and isolated bulldog and i just thought it was masterfully done i thought the match was great and and all four guys busted their ass some of the bumps mankind took fuck it was insane Uh, i want to talk about that too because a couple of weeks prior to this it comes out Mankind had an MRI done this past week on his bad back. We've heard two reports. One, that he had a herniated disc in his back, and it's rather serious. The other, from WWF, is that it was a sciatic nerve problem. He doesn't need surgery and had two weeks off between Mania and the South African tour, and they're hopeful the rest will ease the problem. But if not, he'll probably take time off after the South Africa tour. Do you remember this injury? I don't, but there was always an injury with with Mankind, and... And it was all it would always blow my mind that he would still go out there and take the crazy bumps. Um, that's Mick Foley. He can't help himself. And I know Vince would, I don't want to say chew his ass, but yeah, he would chew his ass a lot of times after some of those crazy bumps and, and just tell Mick, you don't need to do that. Stop doing it. But that's Mick Foley, and that's the kind of performer he is, and he's just going to continue to do it. Um. Meltzer wrote in February that the one of the the original plan was Owen Hart and Davy Boy versus Furnace and Lafon with a tag title switch that happens on every WrestleMania. 
So he says that the original idea was that Furnace and Lafon leave WrestleMania as tag champs. Was that match ever discussed? Is that all bullshit? What do you remember? That match might have been discussed at some point, but then Furnace and Lafon got here and the bell rang. God damn. What? He's just burying motherfuckers today, boy. Woo. Look, no, I, you know what? I, I like Doug a lot. They just were. Phil, I didn't get it. I just didn't get it with Phil. Nice guy, but I just didn't see it in the ring. So let's see. Uh, Meltzer gives this star, this star rating uh, two and a half. What would you say? I thought it was a good match. I, I, I don't know how many stars I would give it. I thought it was I a good match. I thought it told a good story. It's a count out. Uh, anything in particular stand out to you besides Owen running circles, calling spots, and Mankind's Crazy Bumps? No, I just, I loved it. I loved watching, I loved watching the story of the match and the way that they isolated Owen and the way they told the story of a match with the heels doing their job. Well, they were both heels, but it was still a good story and I loved it. Right before this match, we go backstage and we see a famous uh, now internet gif of Shawn Michaels sitting at a table in front of an AOL banner typing on a laptop. Uh, and it's pretty popular and pretty funny to look at is true or false. This is what it looks like when you use your laptop in 2017. True. (laughs) With the exception of the ponytail hashtag when old people tweet, uh, next up we've got in my worldview, the main event, Bret Hart and stone cold, Steve Austin. Uh, this was built up for a long time. They had a match over the summer. Uh, overseas that was released on Coliseum video. Then of course, uh, Brett is gone. Stone cold starts calling him out. Brett returns, accepts the challenge in October and they face each other at the garden at survivor series, but we're not done yet. They continue their feud. Uh, stone cold is the winner of the raw rumble after screwing Brett Hart at the rumble match itself. They face each other in the final four. That doesn't go as everybody hopes. The the go-home show for Raw, they screw Brett again. So this slow, subtle turn starts to happen. And there's lots of great promos building this up from Stone Cold's side, where he says something along the lines of, if Brett had been screwed as many times as he says, he would have struck oil by now. Uh, I ain't bringing a condom to the ring, but I'm bringing a hell of a can of whoop ass. All these little catchphrases, he really starts to get on and get over the bottom line, et cetera, et cetera. And I believe this is Stone Cold's coming out party, you know, from a WrestleMania standpoint. I think the seeds, you know, he was legitimized at Survivor Series. He became a superstar at the Royal Rumble, but he became the guy, at least in my view, here at WrestleMania. Would you agree with that? Wholeheartedly. Uh, the entrance is fucking awesome. If you have not seen this match, when we're done with this podcast today and you're finished, you need to go watch it today. It's one of the best matches in the history of professional wrestling. Uh, that's not just my opinion. That's a motherfucking fact. Kurt Hawkins would agree. Uh, so go check it out. WrestleMania 13. It's an I quit match. Let's talk about why it's I quit. It seems kind of cornball that it's a submission match. It's an I quit match. And you've got Ken Shamrock here. They interview him 
you know, beforehand, Pettengill does in the back. And he says, well, I'm here because I understand submissions. And they show a clip from Raw where he is taking down Rockabilly Billy Gunn and kind of embarrassing him on Raw with a couple of different spots. And he keeps saying, I wasn't trying to hurt him. I was just trying to show him who I am. And he's in the back with his necklace and his jumpsuit looking like he's an extra from the Sopranos. And uh, then he comes out in a painted-on um, referee shirt. <laughs> uh, what's the thinking in making Ken Shamrock the referee? Just to introduce Ken in a different way and put him in a top match and get Ken right into a, a, the top picture and put him in there with stars to introduce him. How? So it was just a different way to get him out there. When did you start drug testing Ken Shamrock? The week after? <laughs> this motherfucker looks like Hulk Hogan circa 1987 right here in his referee shirt. Am I wrong? Kenny still looks like that. Well, uh, Bellator doesn't drug test. Let's get to the match itself. Stone Cold has said... But this match was kind of difficult for him because he didn't really even have a fucking submission move. Uh, and so he's in the I quit match with no submission moves. And that's kind of evidenced by the match. It starts off as a, as a brawl. Stone Cold comes out first. The glass breaks with the Austin 316. Out next is Brett. And the announcers are really laying it on heavy here about, um, you know, Brett and his recent reactions and the way he's been handling himself and they're just really laying it on thick and i think they do a great job in trying to tease this turn before it becomes very apparent Uh, and you certainly see more of it unfold during the course of the match stone cold starts off with a brawl right away they're in the ring just for a few seconds and then they're outside the ring up and over the rail in front of Atlas and Albano, up the stairs, fighting through the crowd, uh, just all over everywhere. What did you think of the match? Loved it. Loved every bit of it. The way Steve started it with a double leg and the way that they rolled around on the mat to start it, it was a fight. In addition to that, the way that the announcers told the story of that Austin didn't have a submission maneuver, but that he was going to beat the hell out of brett until he quit so it 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 did tell the story of brett is a submission guy and he does know a lot of submissions steve doesn't but he'll beat the hell out of him so much that brett will want to quit so the the setup i thought was great and these guys told a beautiful story in the match let's talk about one of the more famous segments um I guess before we do that, we should talk about the fact that I think Brett did one of his better jobs here of isolating a body part and working on a body part. It becomes very realistic. I mean, the way he works on the leg and and the way Austin sells everything. uh, A lot of people kind of sleep on Austin as an in-ring performer. This is maybe the height of his career here as far as in-ring stuff. The dude is just a phenomenal next-level in-ring performer, and people just really focus on the character and the promos, and don't get me wrong, that's all awesome too. But his selling here and his work here is just fucking awesome, and I think a lot of people kind of forget that he's capable of this. Um, but the way Brett worked on the leg, 
man, it just told the story. And Austin helped a great deal with that, of course. But at some point, they go to the outside. Uh, you see Brett start to prepare himself. Uh, Austin starts to Irish whip uh, Hitman into the rail. And uh, Brett reverses it. So Brett goes over, zips Austin. Uh, he admits he hadn't bled a lot in his career at that time. He asked Brett to do it for him. He does it. And the blood really adds to the match. And this one may be more so than most. Uh, because the story here is uh, Austin just won't quit. He, ha- he has the will to win and to not quit. And he'll pass out before he'll quit. He's just not going to quit. And at one point, he breaks the sharpshooter, or so it seems. They put over that nobody's ever done that, but Brett doesn't release the hold. Uh, earlier in the match, we, we saw the figure four around the ring post, which was very innovative at the time, something that Bret Hart doesn't get enough credit for because people still use it today. And uh, his his knee is, is giving out. He's already wearing a brace, and now he's pouring blood out. Just an iconic photo of himself as he's pushing out of the sharpshooter and blood's coming down his face and through his mouth and his teeth. Uh, and then he doesn't respond to Ken Shamrock. When he's asking, if you don't tell me no, I'm going to stop the fight. He doesn't respond. Ken rings the bell. Brett's a little reluctant to break the hold. A few seconds later, Brett starts attacking the unconscious Austin again, kicking him in the leg. And uh, eventually, Shamrock has to belly-to-back suplex him off. And the double turn is complete. So Austin eventually comes to a referee tries to uh, console him or help him. He gives the referee a stunner. He leaves to Austin chance. Meanwhile, Brett is walking down the aisle, flipping off fans saying, fuck you to him. So we have a complete double turn with a crybaby Brett Hart and a badass heel who is too cool for school, who's now a badass babyface, and Steve Austin. Is this the best double turn ever? I think so. Yeah, without a doubt. The The story told by these guys, the match laid out, you know, with Brett. Brett's a master of painting a picture in the ring. And as you said, the picture that he painted was he was going to isolate that leg and isolate that knee and hurt Steve. And Steve Selling was off the chisar. It's incredible. But the story that they told, and they got everybody over. But there was one key thing, and I mentioned this when we first started this podcast about Chris Jericho and what made what made Chris Jericho such a great heel were the nuances. If you go back and you watch this at the very end when Shamrock, after Shamrock pulls Brett off and Brett starts to come into Shamrock, Brett just suddenly takes that one step back. Yep. Away from, you know, showing that respect to Shamrock. And and right there, everything that you had done up until that point, that made your heel because he backed up. Yep. He was a chicken shit for that second. And if you weren't sure up until that point, that was the one little subtlety that Brett did that took you over the edge. You go, no, Brett, come on, not my Brett. And he took you the rest of the way. And that, to me, is is just 
the art of the business that I love so much. The Observer wrote, an incredible brawl from bell to bell with psychology and timing, the likes of which you'll only see when the best go against each other. Uh, he also says, this is one we'll remember for a long time and gives it five stars. Uh, I can't it would have been six stars if it was in the Tokyo Dome. I love you for that. Uh, I love this match. I think it's one of the best matches ever, certainly at the top of my list. I can't recommend it enough. You need to go out of your way to watch this. Uh, if you've never seen it, if you've seen it a thousand times, go fucking watch it again. It'll remind you why you're a fan. Uh, next up, we've got the Legion of Doom, uh, Road Warrior Hawk and Road Warrior Animal taking on... Oh, they're with Ahmed Johnson. He's there, too. Uh, taking on the Nation of Domination, Farouk, Crush, and Savio Vega. Uh, they are seconded by Wolfie D, JCI, Steelo Brown, Clarence Mason, and a host of others. So let's kind of uh, set the stage here. As we remember from the Royal Rumble 97, Ahmed Johnson had already been feuding with Farouk. Uh, there was a, a famous bit in that match where there was a 2 by 4 that was involved. We'll see that 2 by 4 a little later in this match as well. But the Legion of Doom returned to the company in February of 97, uh, coming back on Raw to beat the Headbangers at the Manhattan Center in New York City. Uh, kind of catch me up, Bruce. Uh, how did this deal come together to bring the LOD back in? God damn it, we're going to be in Chicago. Let's bring the LOD in. <laughs> that was the conversation. Um I reached out. I think I reached out to Joe first and got him on the phone with Vince and we came up with a quick deal. At first, I don't know that Vince was really interested in bringing them in for a long-term deal, but he had a vision of Chicago and thought Legion of Doom in Chicago in a Chicago street fight at WrestleMania would be cool and kind of see where their heads were and whether or not he wanted to do something beyond that. Well, uh, were you, when you made this call, were you head of talent relations here or why did you make the call? Uh, I believe I was. Yeah. Prior to the match, we see Farouk and, uh, everybody else from the nation in the back being interviewed. And he makes it a point to have Pettengill say, you're bringing everything but the kitchen sink, right? And Farouk says, who said I'm not bringing the kitchen sink. And then of course, on the way to the ring, we see. Vince McMahon or, or Jim Ross say, man, they've got all the weapons, but the ki- but the kitchen sink. And then of course, Vince McMahon references the kitchen sink. And sure enough, when the road warriors come out, they have the kitchen sink. Oh my, look at that. JR. They've got the kitchen sink right there. Help me understand. Yes, sir. Why is everybody told to talk about the fucking kitchen sink? Because they're bringing everything but the kitchen sink. But then they bring the kitchen sink. Foul. Um, this is not a great match, but this is super <laughs> fucking fun to watch. Uh, it's so clusterfuck great. Uh, but I've always wondered, we haven't talked about the nation of domination much on this show. Was there any pushback from the black Panthers or any other sort of activist groups about the way they're presented here? No, not really. Okay. Not that I, I think there were, there were people that obviously drew that 
correlation, but I don't really remember. I mean, you, you, obviously, you think, really, Bruce? Well, yeah, actually, there were some that, that kind of drew that correlation there a little bit, folks. But, uh, no, it not that I can really remember. There were people that felt it was racist and all that other good shit that goes along with it. But when you've got an attorney like Clarence Mason, then you kind of have all those bases covered. Okay, so one of the other things I've wanted to know about this for a while is there's lots of rumor and innuendo out there that uh, the Legion of Doom, Hawk and Animal, were not necessarily tickled about putting Ahmed on the shoulder spikes, and supposedly he didn't want to give them back. Do you remember hearing anything about this? <laughs> I, I heard about that. Yeah, I don't know if he didn't want to give them back. I think he just took them. And I want to say that Joe had them made for him so that he could come out with the shoulder spikes and they could all come out, you know, looking like the Legion of Doom in Chicago with the spikes and everything. But the rumor was that Ahmed took them home and just didn't bring them back. So I don't know if that's true or not. I, my old age, I think the booking committee knows. Let me just throw this out there. Fuck you for that, by the way. Uh, if you're listening and you have a pair of road warrior shoulder pads, you're looking to dump, hit me up on Twitter. Hey, Hey, it's Conrad. Uh, especially you, Mr. Ahmed Johnson, Tony Norris, if you're listening. Um, so let's Hell, Joe will probably make you some, right? <laughs> uh, Cole Cabana is in the crowd here. Did you find him? I must miss that. So when they're fighting down the aisle, uh, Cole Cabana is in the crowd wearing an ECFNW shirt, and he's talked about it a little bit in the past. Do you remember ever hearing that he was here at this show in the same way that Edge was at WrestleMania 6? Absolutely not. Huh. Uh, scale of 1 to 10, how fucking bad was Ahmed Johnson? Ahmed was at about a solid three and a half. But he looked good. He did look good. Uh, how, what would you call the pads he wore around his thighs? What did you call them? Thigh pads? No. <laughs> no. No, what, uh-uh. what would I call them? I don't know, motherfucker. This is the part where you're entertaining. Oh, shit. I'm sorry. Great googly moogly. No. Okay, Courtney. What the hell? Uh, I don't know. I, you know, man, and not only that, but he also wore the elbow pads up around his, his damn triceps. What would Jim, How would Jim Cornette describe that to somebody? Goddamn, I don't get it. He fucking had knee pads, but there were goddamn thigh pads up around his goddamn dick. But then he fucking took the goddamn elbow pads that should have been fucking knee pads, put them on his goddamn arm. But the fucking tricep was on the side of his goddamn arm. I don't know what the fuck. Mother. Fucker, double meat, double cheese, extra onion, double mayo, motherfucker. You know, I, I'm, I'm sorry. Sidebar. I, I've been on the phone a lot with Corny this week, uh, discussing our, our our friend Jim Jim Ross. And in the middle of, of one of our our calls, it was it was highly emotional. And just to kind of break it for a minute, there we weren't really saying much, and I just all of a sudden went into. God damn, motherfucker! Give me a double cheeseburger, extra onion, extra mayonnaise, motherfucker! Foul mouth, Mickey Mouse. Yeah, and and we were good, you know. Everything got back on track at that point. And he's like, "Well, I gotta go now, motherfucker. I got people coming into town. I gotta drive to Orlando. 
I ain't gonna get on a goddamn death tube. Fuck that shit. So at one point in the match, uh, Hawk swings a two by four and it bounces off the ropes and goes flying. And you hear Vince's butthole pucker live on the air. And he says, nice catch, Hawk. Uh, how panicked did he think Vince was <laughs> when that fucking two by four just goes flying? Dude, his butthole wasn't nearly as panicked as when Hawk grabbed the wrong goddamn fire extinguisher. <laughs> Uh, not the, not just once not just twice but three fucking times until they found the correct fire extinguisher and the only reason that they found the correct fire extinguisher is because we had to have stagehands crawl along the back of the ring and take the fire extinguishers that they were using that were there for pyro purposes and so they had nothing else to grab except for the right one. But yeah, he grabbed the, the goddamn one with the chemicals in it, the powder chemicals in it that just is impossible to breathe and was spraying people in the face and people at ringside with the damn thing. Now, for those of you that don't know, there are several different fi- types of fire extinguishers. There's a fire extinguisher that has a dry chemical in it, which is what they used. And then there is also a CO2 fire extinguisher, which is what they were supposed to use, which basically shoots Freon. And it's cold when it hits you, but it doesn't really do any harm to your lungs or your eyes or anything like that. But, yeah, three times they shot off the wrong fire extinguisher. Uh, yeah, it goes it goes nuts off camera at one point and then right in front of the announcers. And JR says something like, Hell of a place to sit if you got asthma and starts coughing. Um, yeah. Is is Vince pressing the kind of the dump button and motherfucking you guys in the back when this is happening? Oh, God. I don't remember because I was motherfucking everybody in the back and just going, how in the fuck did we have the wrong goddamn fire extinguishers down there? And that's when I found out that we have to have those kind of fire extinguishers under the ring for pyro purposes. Um, but... The guys just went to the wrong corner hmm. where, the, where the right fire extinguishers were. After they sprayed it, they didn't notice a difference? Thank you. Thank you. You would think they would notice the, the big puff of chemicals coming out and, and the, uh, the instant need to draw a deep breath that wasn't coming and you're choking and vomiting and eyes watering and everything else. Yeah. Three, not just once, not just twice, three times. Does nobody think better of using a noose here? Oh. I mean, this does not age well. And we should mention it because we get asked about it all the time. One of the most famous noose angles of all time involved two. Boss man. And your brother. Taker. Your brother. Oh, that, oh, that one in Continental? Yeah. So t- uh, just briefly tell everybody about that so they can go find it on their Google machines. It was Dr. Tom Pritchard and the Dirty White Boy, Tony Anthony, and Continental Championship Wrestling. And Dirty White Boy put a noose around my brother's neck and drug him to the ring by the rope and then hung him in the corner. And actually hung him to where he was losing consciousness and actually choking. And that aired in uh, Alabama. Montgomery and all that. Yeah. 
so that that's a that's a famous one of course we had the uh, which came later which came after this was the hanging with boss man but watching this event 20 years later in 2017 and seeing a noose around the neck of Ahmed Johnson around a black man yeah yes and and Farouk was just shocking it it was like what in the hell were we thinking I mean how does that happen because it's not like (laughs) slavery was okay in 97 you know uh burning crosses was cool in 96 like that was so far removed by then but yet somehow it didn't seem like it was nearly as big of a deal as it does now what do you think's the cause of that i think that guys went into business for themselves and i think that someone probably convinced someone else that a black man putting a noose around another black man's okay Mm. i just i just don't see it okay I, i just don't see you using a hangman's noose okay no matter what color anyone is but, but especially just, if you're a black especially man. you know yeah two fat white guys talking about you know what what's bad that's bad folks <laughs> that's bad okay two fat white guys from the south are like whoa hold on. whoa yeah <laughs> too okay. far god damn it <laughs> Oh gosh! You got the fat white guy in Alabama and the fat white guy in Texas, and we're both going. Oh, no, no good. No, no. Abort. Abort. Yeah. Abort. <laughs> Danger, Will Robinson. Let's do something else. Yeah. <laughs> oh my God! It was yeah. It was fucking horrible, man. Let's talk about uh, my favorite spot in the in the match. It's the uh, pile driver from Road Warrior Animal on Farouk on top of the uh. table. You mean the kneel down and jump off the table? What the, what the fuck was that? Well, I feel bad for him because you know that. I mean, how many times has Animal given a pile driver a thousand? I mean, just the worst possible fucking luck and timing and positioning, and the cameras just can't. It's right there for yeah. it. Yeah, hang on, don't do it. whatever you do, Kerwin, don't cut away like you do every time. If you know what. If we wanted him to cut away to miss something, he would. Well, I don't know. I love Kerwin. I'm not going to bust. In this particular match, though, you got to admit the fucking production is awful. You you miss so much of what's going. And I know there's a lot going on, and it's it's a it's a tough task. But holy shit, this seems like unusually bad. They were normally on top of it, but here, it's a miss. Well, it was so many guys. That's why I say that I really believe that guys went into business for themselves a lot in this match and just were doing shit all over the place. And you talk about the, the pile driver on the table. The other the other big part of that was that wasn't even a regular table. Those were skinny tables. Yeah. So you throw a 300-pound guy like Animal up there. Now you shorten his stance. Yep. And you stick another guy's head in between his legs, and he's going to try and do a pile driver. It just, it was disaster written all over it. Uh, One of the things that stuck out to me in this was, and they missed it the first time. They had to show it on replay. But the bump from Farouk from the second rope to the floor where he just landed on his hip. Oh, I've never seen him take a bump like that before, and I hope nobody does again. That was unnecessary. Yeah, I know, and it hurt me watching it. Just yeah. looking at it again, I, I was like, "Oh my god!" And he and he hits solid and just stays there. 
Toward, move. Towards like, the end of the uh, match, seemingly everyone's kind of out of position, and PG hands Ahmed the two by four. So he's their opponent, and of course they pretend like they're going to hit him with it, and he just takes it. But in execution, the way it's shot, it looks like, hey Ahmed, here's the two by four, and uh, then they use this two by four um, and run it into Crush, and that's the pin. Thank God. Uh, thank God. For mercy killing. And it's worth mentioning that uh, the Observer notes, the Road Warriors-Chicago Street Fight was a better version of the same match WCW tried the previous week. Similar to the Harlem Heat Public Enemy match the previous week, but better since it was kept shorter and with better psychology. Three and a half stars. Um, so he gives that one three and a half stars and gives Hunter and, and Goldust yep. two and a half. Please. You got it. Yeah, it was, you know, the, the other unsung heroes of of the match were, first of all, PG-13 and their rap and introduction in the very beginning. Yeah. And, I and love. I mean, here's what I don't get about that. They did a fine job with the rap because, uh, you know, you wouldn't expect it to be good, but it was actually pretty decent for, you know, wrestling standards and what they were trying to accomplish. But Vince McMahon and the, and the commentators were talking all over it the whole time. Oh, uh, that shit would drive me nuts. And today, Vince would be yelling, lay out, lay out. But on top of that, the bumps that those guys took throughout the match to, to just, you know, it, it distract and divert and bring people's attention elsewhere. And D'Lo Brown was another one who was bumping his ass off and putting people in position on the outside of the ring all throughout that match, getting his ass whooped. And then at the very end, PG-13 go up for the finish, and you got Animal holding up uh, Jamie, and poor Wolfie is being held up by Ahmed. And Hawk comes off with the double clothesline for both of those guys to do the flip, of course, Animal gives Jamie the nice boost, and Jamie takes the big uh, over-and-under bump. And then there's poor, poor Wolfie doing everything that he can to get over it. And Ahmed doesn't give him any help. And Wolfie just comes crashing down on his shoulder, and, and I just was like, ouch, those poor kids. <laughs> I felt sorry for them. You got any good PG-13 stories? It feels like these guys would have been a good time. I can't imagine you don't have a Jamie Dundee story. Oh, my God. They, you know what? They they were they were fine. They, I remember a meltdown somewhere in upstate New York where they got all upset, and, and Shawn Michaels, of all people, went out and calmed them down and, and got them to chill a little bit, but they were upset at something. But... They were brought in. They were brought in as a favor. Lawler had suggested bringing them in. We were looking for a couple of guys to put in the nation. Let's try these guys out. It wasn't a. It was never a long term deal. It was just let's bring them in and see how they do. But um, yeah, they they were. I enjoyed. I enjoyed the fuck out of their stick, man. They were good. They were entertaining little bastards. And they're not little. Jamie's Jamie's smaller than Wolfie. Wolfie's, you know, good-sized guy. I found it interesting here that uh, on this show, they ran a commercial, or I guess just uh, a graphic and an announcement for WrestleMania 14 uh, for 1998, and that it's going to be in Boston at the Fleet Center. 
But then Vince immediately makes the announcement. Tickets are not on sale. Please do not attempt to buy tickets. How fuck, yeah. how fucking weird is that? I'm sure it stuck out to you too. Yeah, because the um, I'm trying to think where the hell it was. There was an issue. You know, we would always announce at WrestleMania where we were going to be the next year, and there was an issue one year that people were calling for tickets a year in advance. And they just didn't feel that was good. So they felt, well, make sure that you say that tickets are not on sale. I have that written down, too. It was just strange. Hey, we're going to be here, but folks, do not buy buy ticket checks because they're not on sale yet. And he learned his lesson there, learned to put those damn things on sale a year in advance. Strange. Uh, they're also uh, something that everybody has pointed, not everybody, a lot of people have wanted me to ask about. There's a sign in the crowd. Do you remember what sign I'm going to mention here? Which one? Vince is God? No. It's pretty creative. It's Go ahead. moving scissors where one blade says Sid and one blade says Arn and the scissors open and close. How, how the did, hell did I miss that? How did how did the WWF not take that? Well, hell, I watched it again. And I missed it too, so I don't know. Probably didn't see it. Well, pretty fun sign. Uh, next up, we see Sean come out to the ring, and um, he makes a whole victory lap uh, around the ring. And I got the impression that that was not exactly what the plan was. Because when he passes McMahon, he says something like, not yet, right? And then you kind of see Sean power through the second half of his lap and then start to climb the steps. And he looks over his shoulder to make sure that Vince can't see him. He outstretches his coat. He looks down and flashes the click symbol. Um, The next night on Nitro, Kevin Nash gets right up in the camera and say, uh, does the click sign right into the camera and says right back at you, HP, HPK. Was there any sort of pushback about Sean taking extra time, kind of hamming it up for the crowd when he was coming out, or his click sign to the camera, as far as you know? No, and there were people that, the funny thing is, there were people that brought up the click sign. Oh, damn, he's doing that shit. And Vince's reaction to that was, well, it was their thing first here. Yeah. Um, you know, reality was it was Bret Hart's thing first there. But the other way of thinking about it was, okay, if it gets more people watching the shows, then great. But, yeah, no, there was no big pushback there. Let's talk about um, before the match. I kind of forgot about this, that uh, Bret comes down and starts talking smack to Sean taker and sid and gets a power bomb for his troubles from sid isn't this a little unconventional for a wrestlemania main event and you have it start with an angle like this well the whole wrestlemania was a little unconventional and it was kind of happened together and it was more of a it was more of a launching pad wrestlemania than it was kind of a finality wrestlemania if that makes sense where instead of things kind of coming to an end we were using it to try and springboard things for the future 
because so much of it was put together at the last minute. It was an attempt to continue to make Brett a heel. It was a way to get give Sid an excuse. And it just was serving so many fucking masters. Um, hindsight being 2020, not real fond of the finish for the main event just because of the, the chair shot with Sid. But I understood, you know, obviously why we had to do what we had to do. And we were serving an awful lot of masters at that time, trying to just get through the damn thing and move on for the summer. Um, was this the Undertaker's year by default? It was, I don't I wouldn't say default, but uh, well, maybe you would, because it was when you're looking at it. Vince wanted a baby face. He wanted a stalwart. He wanted somebody in that role that he could trust that he felt he could depend on no matter what. And Undertaker was that guy. So by default. No, I'm Well, here's what I mean, like because there was no because there was really nobody else. We weren't ready for Austin, yeah. I mean, but, it's sad to say that, but yeah. But WrestleMania 5 was about Hulk Hogan. WrestleMania 4 was about Macho Man. WrestleMania 6 was about the Ultimate Warrior. You know, WrestleMania 13. Yeah. Yep. It uh, was last minute. Let's make, let's give them, a, you know, what we can give them. And, and it's kind of weird to me that at this point, Sid had main evented two WrestleManias Undertaker never had. I mean, this is his first, but you know what I mean. Um, how would you rate Sid selling? Selling in the ring? Mm-hmm. Okay. Not great. A lot of people are critical of Sid and say that, you know, he wasn't any good. He was terrible. Uh, he didn't deserve to be there. He didn't respect the business. Uh, his work isn't any good. Yada, yada, yada. Where do you land on Sid? I land on Sid as being a charismatic, promoing motherfucker that had a great body and a great look, and he drew money. You know what? People paid to see that big son of a bitch, and you believed him when he told you what he was going to do. His his work was okay for a big man, and in the day of the big man, in the day of the Hulk Hogan era, where it was big man versus big man, and there wasn't that big of an emphasis on work. It wasn't that big of an emphasis on having that great match. It was about drawing people to the building and caring about the participants in the match. Sid was good for that. But he wasn't good for going out there and having what you would call your five-star match. But he had he had that charisma, and people responded to him, and he could he could talk people into a building. I, I was a fan of Sid. Um, I enjoyed him here a great deal. Uh, at some point in the match, Brett comes back out and hits Sid with the chair, like you talked about, and this happens twice. He hits him with the chair twice in the back, right in front of the referee, and it's not a DQ. Help me understand. Because- well, they they said that at the very beginning of the match that the match was no holds barred, no DQ match. But that wasn't ever marketed that way, right? No, it wasn't. It was it was done that night, and it was a way to be able to do all the bullshit that they did. But they did they did announce it at the very beginning of the match. 
the notes from um, Meltzer say they've done an incredible job this year destroying the credibility of the title with all the run-ins and screw jobs in every title match, which probably explains why the title means so little in TV ratings. A star and a quarter. He also writes, they sunk to WCW levels for a main event by putting Undertaker uh, in with Cycle Sid. Cycle Sid. Ending with the Undertaker capturing the WWF title for a second time, the fifth WWF title change already in 1997. So by the end of March, five title changes. Yeah, not by design, but it was was what it was. Well, um, the match itself, I thought, was okay for what it was. I did think it went a little long. Uh, I thought... Sid took the uh, the tombstone like a fucking champ. And they got a big pop for The Undertaker and his win. And even Sean on commentary says uh, that not everybody who's held that title has deserved it, but this man deserves it. I'm curious, you know, because people are fascinated by The Undertaker and his role as a locker room leader, and he just seems too cool for school, and he gargles Jack Daniels, and... Uh, you know, is the judge in the wrestler's court and the enforcer when things go sideways, yada, yada, yada. Does he give a shit that he's the world champion here? I think he looked at it as, as an opportunity to to be the leader and in front of the camera as well as behind the camera. Um, he was looking at it as a challenge to be the guy and felt that he could, he felt he, he undertaker felt that he wanted that challenge of, of being the guy in front of the camera and being, being the champion and being the one, everything was built around. So it was, it was a way to kind of not be the gimmick guy not be the attraction, but be the champ and be the guy. That's, that's me reading into it. And, and that was a part of it. And I know from Vince's standpoint, it was let's let's do something with a guy that we know that we have that we're not going to have to worry about them losing their smile or getting pissed off or anything else or doing something crazy. It's worth mentioning that uh, the Undertaker would hold the belt here 133 days uh, before he lost it at SummerSlam '97 to Bret Hart. Uh, in that match, Shawn Michaels was the special guest referee. Um, along the way, he had matches against Mankind, Steve Austin, Farouk, and Vader. Um, but here we are, WrestleMania 13. Something else that a lot of fans online want to know, and we get this question a lot, is about the super fans who are around a lot at the time who have been nicknamed Vladimir and Howard Stern fan. Do you know anything about Howard Stern fan, Vladimir, or... A guy that at the time, fans who traveled referred to as the Eagle, but on Reddit, he's known as Bowl Cut Kid, which is a heavy set kid with a bowl cut who, every time the camera's in front of his face, makes a, a face like he's screaming, Ah! Uh, d- d- any memory of any of these fans or uh, anything you can share with us as to how they got fucking tickets to every event? We used to ask the exact same question. Uh, Vladimir and those guys, you know, Vlad 
uh, was a built guy, had a good build. And, and then the Howard Stern guys guy kind of looked a little bit like Charles Manson bowl cut. That's funny. Um, I remember all three of those guys, but we, <laughs> we used to ask how on the Vince got down. How in the hell do they always get the best seats? I said, well, Vince, they obviously know somebody. But our, the extent of talking to them would be kind of around the ring. And, hey, how are you guys doing? And they would just cheer and come up and, and tell us great show. And we love you guys. They were everywhere. I want to know if anybody knows this out there. I want to know what the hell these guys did for a living that they were able to make all these pay-per-views all across the country and get those seats and how the hell they got them. So that's a question for our universe for our listeners to try and find that out for us. A couple quick questions too. I want to kind of run through. Um, do you know why the undertaker went back to gray here as opposed to purple, which he had been doing in recent years? No, it's probably just to be different. Probably just go old school. At this point, you know, a lot of people may not remember the, the timeline here, but the curtain call happens in May of 96 that changes the way the King of the Ring is supposed to go. And instead of it being Hunter, it's Steve Austin. And now fast forward, here we are at WrestleMania a year later. At this point, do you think all the heat was off of Hunter for the curtain call? Or was he still dealing with some of that? No, he had paid his dues and, had, you know, done all of his punishments and got out of the doghouse. Uh, the night before were the 1997 Slammy Awards, which I really enjoyed because as a Ute, that uh, swimsuit competition was on time. And there is a uh, Daily Motion video out there if you'd like to throw that in your Google machine. Slammy 97 swimsuit competition. But the reason I want to mention this um, specifically is there's a line in here that Hunter uses uh, when he's on stage that he says something like, um, Sonny's only good for one thing, and my best friend says she's not even that good at that. Uh, he's saying this with Tammy sitting right next to Chris Candido, who's still with the company at the time. Help me understand. Well, I believe we were live, first of all, right? On USA or yeah. wherever the hell we were. We were live on USA. And that was them being the smart-ass guys and going out and going into business for themselves. Any sort of punishment or just? I I didn't punish him. I didn't talk to him about it. Uh, I don't know if anybody did or not. Do that you... was, I believe that was the, yeah, Chicago. We were like at a Marriott or something. That's right. Yeah, and that, that was the one where Undertaker and I sat back at gorilla position and drank the entire night. Uh, it might actually, Candido may not have been signed at the time. He may have already been with ECW, but either way. Um, do you remember who and how the new Blackjacks get broken up? Uh, did the guys enjoy it or did Vince not like it? No, the guys enjoyed it. I just think that it was it was kind of time, and everything runs its course. Runs its course. It wasn't getting over for whatever reason, just because I think maybe people thought it was a nostalgia act. But just some things just don't hit. It didn't hit. 
if you wouldn't have done Undertaker in the main event when you were kind of scrambling, trying to figure out what you could put together, who would it have been if not Undertaker? Might have been Steve Austin a year early. Wow. That brings a great question. You know, why wouldn't you just put Austin and Brett in the main event? It seems like that's what everybody wanted to see. I think, well, I'll give you that answer. And the reason is, is that Vince at that time did see something in Austin and was really feeling something with Austin, but he wanted it to play out and he wanted that build. I'm not sure that he saw everything that he got until really that night with Tyson. I mean, we we saw, man, that that Austin build is one just unique motherfucking build that happened right underneath your nose, and there was no denying it. And then all of a sudden, it was pedal to the metal. When do you think, but, when do you remember Austin being like Vince saying, this is the guy. I'm not trying it anymore. I know this is the guy. Did he know after WrestleMania 13, or was there another show in particular? He knew He knew at 13. I, I dare say he probably knew at Survivor Series the year before. The stuff that Austin did, uh, which I've talked about on this show before, behind the chain link fence and with the dogs barking, yeah. hey, Brett, I got, you know, and all that. That was where everybody all of a sudden turned their head and said, oh, shit, we got something here. Uh, do you know if the original plan before everything got changed with with Sean was Bulldog versus Austin? I, I really don't know. I don't remember. Uh, you know, it, it, again, and, and to explain that, when when shit changes and you've got to go in and you've got to change everything, you have to erase what you had planned. You you really have to force yourself to get that out of your head because if you don't, you continually hit a wall saying, well, goddamn, we had this planned. You have to get to a place where you just forget it all. And you have to look at a blank piece of paper and say, we had nothing planned. This is our, this is our first day on the job. Do, do, do. Um, and you just have to move forward and forget what the hell you might have had planned. And it's a mindset and it's something that if you can't do it, you're going to be doomed to just say, well, what if, was there ever a plan to involve ECW at any level on the pay-per-view because you guys had just started working with them and letting them on raw and promote their pay-per-view and blah, blah, blah. You're in Chicago you're starting to cuss a little bit. You're using beautiful people by Marilyn Manson. You're using more weapons. Why not try to involve ECW a little bit here? Well, I don't think Paul wanted to be involved. I, I, I can't answer that. I don't know. I just don't know that it was ever something that we considered. Any sort of pushback you remember about Ahmed being in the noose or any of the Uncle Tom stuff and... Ahmed Farouk stuff you were doing at the time? No, and I had forgotten all about that until I watched it. And it's just, again, the horror of watching it. <laughs> it was like, holy shit. I can't, I, still today, I, I know it was 20 years ago. I can't believe that that, that happened. 
I can't believe that the people in the match or that anybody thought that was a good idea. Just dumbfounds me. Let's um, let's address the rumor and innuendo, shall we? Sure. That Sid shit his pants. You know, I don't check guys' pants when they come back through Gorilla. So I have no idea if he did or not. God damn. I, I saw that online, and, and there were several people that said, no, he did it at a house show weeks before that. I, I don't know. He's wearing black pants. How would I know if he shit his pants? Hypothetically, if he shit his pants and there was a brown spot on his black trunks, when he walks through the curtain back in Gorilla and Vince is sitting waiting for him, What's that sound like? What's that smell? Something like that. Something like that. If it's volleyball season. No, not volleyball. <laughs> I said volleyball. If it's softball season. Who the hell knows? Do you remember Austin being nervous about... Um, Zipping himself. Well, first of all, no one knew that anybody was zipping anybody. What do you mean? You mean what do I mean? No one knew they were getting color. Bruce, are are you paying attention? To what? We just did a fucking three-hour show about the goddamn thing. We talked about how great the match is. You didn't think it would have been use, uh, useful to fucking throw that tidbit of information in when we're talking about the goddamn Well, match? you had all the goddamn answers. You're talking about Steve and his book and all the other shit. But, yeah, no. No, they did not have approval to get color in the match, and uh, no one knew. Are you fucking ribbing me? No, I'm not ribbing you. Help me. Vince was livid, and Vince wasn't, livid, wasn't only livid the fact that they got color without permission. He was livid at the fact that they fucked up the map for the rest of the show. And they shot the shit out of it. Yeah, they did. They even shot the, the pool of blood at the end of the, at the, end of the night. So yeah, he was livid. If he's against it, why are they doing all that? Because they thought it would add to the match. Who's they? Brett and Steve. Brett and Steve were holding cameras. Oh, no, why they shot it? I I guess that they thought that it was all part of it. But no, Vincent, no. I didn't know. So what's Bret Hart's deal with blading without permission at WrestleMania? He did it at WrestleMania 8. Now he's doing it at WrestleMania 13. He felt that it that the match needed it. That was just something that, that he did, and, and Vince was pissed off about it and talked to him about it. I don't know what, what else he did about it. But, uh, no, I didn't know. Vince didn't know. Agent didn't know. But Vince was pissed. Vince was pissed on a lot of different levels, not knowing they were going to do it and fucking up the mat. Because the match is so good, do they get a pass or are they fined? Do you remember? I, th- you know, Vince talked about finding them, but Vince handled it. Vince, Vince dealt with both guys and he was. He was not happy. He was just, he was pretty livid. I mean, he chewed all our asses out like we knew. And we're all looking at each other. Nobody knew. We thought, watching it live, that it was a hard way. How did you think Sean did as a commentator in the main event? 
I thought, you know, yeah, I don't know. I, I thought they didn't need it. They put him out there to get star power and get Sean on the show. Was there any sort of uh, conversation with Mr. Perfect about coming back for WrestleMania 13 in the days leading up to it? No. There was talk in that time frame about Kurt coming back, but not for WrestleMania 13, no. Uh, when would he have been trying to come back? The, at that time, it was just whether or not he could come back to the ring at all, and there was just discussions in general of whether or not he wanted to come back. If you had, to there get, was just preliminary conversations about, hey, do you want to work? You want to get in the ring again? What's the thinking in, in putting Honky Tonk Man on TV in, in such a big role in 1997? Doesn't this seem even more out of place in hindsight than it did at the time? It's the greatest intercontinental champion of all time. Honky Tonk Man was over, and Honky Tonk Man drew, and, and so he was and, a big star. And, so it was a way to just. Again, add star power, little nostalgia to the show, and see the Honky Tonk Man. You think he was really over in 1997? Maybe not in 1997, but he was over one time. It was a nostalgia deal. It was, hey, let's get Honky Tonk Man out there. Newspapers were over once upon a time, too. Still in 1997, they were over. Um... Anything else you can think of that you'd like for us to uh, cover or address for WrestleMania 13? No, I think we covered it all, by God. I thought we got a lot more out of it than I thought we would. Real quick, I've always kind of been curious about this, because even when I put it on the poll, somebody tried to take me to task and said, okay, who doesn't know how to do Roman numerals for 13? But this was the first WrestleMania where there weren't Roman numerals. Why was that? You know, the funny thing was, was this was one that Vince didn't want to do Roman numerals and wanted to stop the Roman numerals at 13. And they were back the next year. And they were back the next year. Like even the graphic for WrestleMania 14 on WrestleMania 13 has it in Roman numerals. Thank you very much. He was like, I don't want people don't know Roman numerals. Just do numbers. And then the and, and the, the very next logo is X I V. Like, goddamn people! Um, it would amaze me some of the mandates that would come down and and you know never use this word again. Two weeks later, and then for, <laughs> it, was, it was always the same shit. Chat me up. Tell me about something else we missed in wrestlemania since you were going to let me go the whole show and not tell me that they didn't get permission to blade no i wasn't going to let you go the whole show i wanted to give our listeners a reason to stay to the very end when they get those little tidbits but by god they don't expect next week right here it's all things hulkamania brother we'll see you next week at something to wrestle with Bruce Pritchard. John brings his skewed sense of humor. Jeff brings tips to cut strokes off your next round. Together, 
It's those weekend golf guys. They'll pay a lot of money to PXG and Titleist and Callaway and on and on and on, right? How many yards do you think you're going to pick up with that extra driver? I think I can get an extra 5 to 10. What if I give you 15 to 20? Can <laughs> you pay me more? Jeff Smith right? teaches on the sliding scale. <laughs> those weekend golf guys, the podcast, part of the Believe Network. Just search B-L-E-A-V on YouTube or wherever you listen.